this is your Friday night addiction. The rundown has returned after two weeks of uh, inactivity. We took one week off and a world war started. Uh, we have <laughs> Bill Jasper here to help break down what's happening in Europe. And uh, well, this is going to be a lively stream. This is a rundown. Catholic Disinfo Hour, celebrating its second year of weekly production. The Rundown is a collaborative Catholic news and opinion show endeavoring to expose and mock the Build Back Better New World Order in both civil society and the church. We've correctly predicted lockdowns, mandates, elections, and public frauds of all manner. Covidians hate us, normies try to ignore us, and fake news organizations wish they could be us. This is The Rundown. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com The United States military is a guiding light leading the world to democracy and freedom. But if we want this beacon of truth and justice to shine, we need to remain Army strong, and that means diversity. From gender reveal grenades and fabulous pride uniforms to our new pronoun dog tags. We're leading the way in both killing power and inclusivity. We're even training our soldiers to defend against violent misgendering from enemy forces. Excuse me, sir. Ah! It is ma'am! An updated, more inclusive exercise regimen and regiwoman. So no one feels left out. And more supportive drill sergeants who are completely judgment-free. You're special just the way you are. Don't let anyone tell you any different. You are beautiful at any time! Your two moms are proud of you! Enemies of America, you've been warned. We're strong. We're Army Strong. This is the story of a soldier who operates your nation's Patriot Missile Defense Systems. Не имеет значения. То, кем ты был прежде, уже никого не волнует. Теперь важно то, кем ты будешь. It begins in California with a little girl raised by two moms. Сегодня. Что ты знаешь о себе? На что ты способен? Вопросы могут остаться без ответов, но разве ты сможешь потом спокойно спать? Узнать тебя, познать границы своих возможностей. К черту границы, ты готов ломать себя до изнеможения. Каждый день здесь боль закаляет. Шрамы, повседневность. Это ты решил себе что-то доказать. Командир здесь только для того... Although I had a fairly typical childhood, took ballet, played violin, I also marched for equality. I like to think I've been defending freedom from an early age. When I was six years old, one of my moms had an accident that left her paralyzed. Doctors said she might never walk again. 
but she tapped into my family's pride to get back on her feet, eventually standing at the altar to marry my other mom. With such powerful role models, I finished high school at the top of my class and then attended UC Davis, where I joined a sorority full of other strong women. I needed my own adventures, my own challenge. And after meeting with an army recruiter, I found it. A way to prove my inner strength and maybe shatter some stereotypes along the way. I'm U.S. Army Corporal Emma Malone Lord, and I answered my calling. You remember Seinfeld? Not that there's anything wrong with that. Every time they say, "Oh, we're not getting nothing," there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I do think this could strike terror into the hearts of some people. <laughs>
was going to say, is this an episode of Recession? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, whatever we've been waiting for. It feels like what the hell did I sign up for? <laughs> I need a bell. I need a bell. <laughs> that was that was a longer than normal intro uh but yes, we have a larger than normal panel today i don't think we've ever done six at a time oh wow look at us <laughs> this, this is an international panel i didn't introduce uh ben carter who joins us from the united kingdom well he's he's a brit who doesn't live in the united kingdom i won't tell people where you live if you don't want them to know but you've lived in russia for 12 years i did so we're right. going to try to break down what the heck is happening in eastern europe tonight uh, evidently, if we take a week off, uh, bad things happen around the world. <laughs> Nuclear war starts, etc. <laughs> it's it's pretty bad. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the Ukraine quite a bit tonight, but I just wanted to let everybody know we have plenty of other domestic things to cover as well. We're going to be looking at Hillary Clinton, Condi Rice. Uh, other politicians have jumped in the fray. Ron DeSantis makes a very uh, <laughs> controversial comment on camera. Uh, but I want to start tonight with, um, well, here's the primer. This is apparently what it's like to live in Kiev right now. Uh, and if that doesn't scare you, maybe this will. Bill Jasper is an independent uh, journalist. He's the editor of New American Magazine. He's been credentialed uh, at the United Nations for three plus decades now. Doesn't have many friends there, is my guess. Uh, Bill, I want to give it over to you, your opening thoughts on what is happening over there. Uh, help us with the context. Well, it's a big story, and it uh, goes back a long ways. And... Uh, there's so many different uh, tangents we could go off on this, uh, but I think the, uh, the there are there are a number of things which uh, should be evident right at first, and I don't think many Americans have been informed about it from the mainstream media. And uh, really, a couple of the things we have to keep in mind are that what we have seen with the recent invasion of Ukraine really was put into motion months ago, a year ago, uh, on the first day that Joe Biden came into the Oval Office. And 
what do I mean with that? What was his first act as president of the United States, if you assume that he is legitimately president of the United States? His first act was to sign an order taking away the U.S. Uh, Keystone Pipeline, XL Pipeline. He, he celebrated that. That was his big his big gift to the to the uh, Greens in the, in the Democratic Party, and that was so important because one of his follow up acts to that after stopping our pipeline, which was uh, incidentally going to be the world's first uh, carbon zero pipeline. But he followed that up with a whole series of other attacks on U.S. energy, uh, on coal, on gas, on nuclear power. Uh, so at the same time, what did he do in, in Europe? He gave the go-ahead on Nord Stream 2, which is Russia's pipeline into Europe. And those collected acts, but particularly those two pipeline acts, did several things. One, it started driving up the, the price of gas, natural gas and energy all over the world uh, in conjunction with the oil uh, prices. And that mm -hmm. basically funded Putin's drive into Ukraine. This After is an interesting Dallas point, Bill. Bill. This is an interesting point. I want to interject because actually, if we go back to a historical video of President Trump, talking about this let me see if i have this video uh he makes he makes exactly your point and i think that this is important and i'm sorry i interjected when i thought i had the video and now i can't seem to find it i thought i loaded it i oh i here it is he he's he's lecturing germany for making this stupid deal i think uh, it's very sad when germany makes a massive oil and gas deal with russia where you're supposed to be guarding against Russia, and Germany goes out and pays billions and billions of dollars a year to Russia. So we're protecting Germany, we're protecting France, we're protecting all of these countries. And then numerous of the countries go out and make a pipeline deal with Russia, where they're paying billions of dollars into the coffers of Russia. So we're supposed to protect you against Russia, but they're paying billions of dollars to Russia. And I think that's very inappropriate. And the former chancellor of Germany is the head of the pipeline company that's supplying the gas. Uh, ultimately, Germany will have almost 70 percent of their country controlled by Russia with natural gas. So you tell me, is that appropriate? I mean, we've, I've been complaining about this from the time I got in. It should have never been allowed to have happened. But Germany is totally controlled by Russia because they were getting from 60 to 70 percent of their energy from Russia and a new pipeline. And you tell me if that's appropriate, because I think it's not. And I think it's a very bad thing for NATO. And I don't think it should have happened. And I think we have to talk to Germany about it. On top of that, Germany is just paying a little bit over one percent, whereas the United States in actual numbers is paying 4.2 percent of a much larger GDP. So I think that's inappropriate also. You know, we're protecting Germany, we're protecting France, we're protecting everybody, and yet we're paying a lot of money to protect. Now, this is...
Bill, I want to kick it back over to you to finish your opening comments. But, uh, you know, it's so funny to me because I heard Jen Psaki say that Biden rebuilt NATO. (laughs) I'm so glad that you had that uh, news segment on there. That was a breakfast meeting that President Trump had with NATO and sitting directly across the table from him there was Jen Stoltenberg. This was in 2018 at the NATO summit in Brussels. And uh, I was also our correspondent in Brussels for the EU and NATO. So I've spent a considerable amount of time there in Brussels. Uh, But I quoted in an article which we just uh, had posted online that very, his quotes from that uh, uh, news conference. And that was followed by his meeting with uh, Angela Merkel, in which he made those same statements. And he really went toe to toe with her on that and said, look, at uh, you're asking the Americans to pay for all of this. Uh, and we're get, we're paying tens of billions of dollars. And then you turn around and you're paying tens of billions of dollars to Russia. He says they own you. He says they will have you completely under their control. He said, don't, don't do it. So she re, she refused to uh, listen to the reason. Jen Stoltenberg of NATO, who now is saying that we're going to to really uh, buckle down in in NATO. He he said, well, that's not our problem. That's a national thing. Uh, NATO won't get involved in that. Yeah. Uh, So he went on to uh, belittle all of that and saying, well, we can just get along and uh, we can work together. We're stronger together. And Trump in that same thing, he said, together, how can you say you're together when you're giving your your main opposition, your enemy, uh, this control over you? So, yeah. I mean, kudos to Trump on that uh, particular uh, case. He, he made the case. They wouldn't listen to him. So he came back to the United States and he did two things. He put his own sanctions on Nord Stream and that stopped it uh, for, the, for right then. When Biden came in, of course, he jump started it again. Uh, but then Trump also turned around and said, OK, well, we're going to continue our plan to free America's energy and become energy independent. And so the following year in 2019, mm-hmm. uh, for the first time since 1957, the United States did become energy independent. That didn't mean we didn't import any, but we were exporting more than we were importing. And uh, many people, because I'd written articles on it. We'd published many articles on this for decades saying it was possible for us to be energy independent. America is blessed beyond any other country in terms of the diversity and the wealth of all of the natural resources that we have. And it is possible for us to be energy independent. So-called experts said ridiculous. That could never happen. That could never happen. It did happen. It happened two years ago. And when when but, Trump but, left, but what gas- about all the endangered turtles and things, Ryan? I mean, you know, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It, we have to, we have to uh, close down everything for the furbish lousewort and the endangered turtles. So uh, that's what's been happening for yeah. uh, for decades. As left wing environmentalists use weaponized environmental lawsuits to stop 
virtually any kind of productive uh, endeavor. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a, that's an interesting primer, uh, Bill. In terms of there's there's definitely an energy component uh, to what we're talking about. I want to kick it. I want to go all the way around and have everyone jump in. Uh, opening thoughts on what's happening in Eastern Europe. Ryan, you can either you can either pick up where Bill left off on energy specifically and the and the weird uh, insidious relationship between Germany, uh, who's a NATO member, and and the um, and the Russian Federation, or uh, you can you can take the conversation in terms of the overview wherever you want to go. Um, well, with the in regards to energy, uh, it's one of the things we've seen in geopolitics for probably the last thirty years or so. Uh, countries that are natural enemies suddenly, you know, coming together and putting things together because they, they can put a pipeline through somewhere. And that eases tensions in this place, or it, and it changes the nature of relationships. You see pipelines going through, um, you know, through Afghanistan was one of the things in the lead up to the the war in Afghanistan. They were trying to get pipelines through there, uh, lithium mining rights, all these energy rights, and, the, and it does create a whole different set of of considerations and problems. And Ukraine also is rich in natural resources. It's rich in so many things that are desirable to certain players in the geopolitical stage, including Russia, as well as uh, the West. And so, it, but one of the things that, that disturbs me most when, when I see this, well, one, I've always been anti-war, unless you're defending your own nation from an aggressor. Um, and I don't support anything that Putin's doing, but I look at, you know, there's so many things on both sides of it. Uh, you know, that are coming out. And I have to say, I really don't trust a lot of the news I'm getting coming mm -hmm. out of Ukraine because we're already seeing uh, fake images on both sides. Um, you know, fake images that came from a video game, for example, put on the news as if they were actual images from Ukraine as the game was Arma 3. And it was mm -hmm. uh, appeared on Spanish television news. You have, uh, you know, various other stories. You have footage of Zelensky uh, that was, you know, filmed and created some time ago that's now being put up there now uh, to, you know, to turn him into this created hero. You have uh, other things, uh, planes flying over Russia from 2020 that are now being shown as footage of Russian planes flying over Ukraine. And the Russian side is putting out, you know, things that are completely fake. Uh, the FSB put out, um, you know, some image of what's basically some, some glorified wreck uh, outhouse saying, oh, look at what the Ukrainians did to our border fort here. And it's completely fake. Um, and so and I think we got to, when you see the Western media and Russian media likewise have shown fake images of things to get their point across. You think of, uh, you know, when, when last uh, couple years ago, they showed uh, footage of Syria on NBC, but it was actually a Kentucky gun range as it turned out. And it might be believable that some intern just was simply looking for video and stuck it in there and nobody vetted it. If it wasn't a continual thread on the news, show a picture of some protest in India and claim it's happening in Libya because, well, Americans don't know the difference between them brown folks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you could see the Indian flag in the background and it says protest in Libya. Um, or you have, again, you know, so many different things. It's been documented so many times where they use media and lie. And then people say, oh, yeah, well, it's them, them people over there. So nobody really second guesses it. So I'm at a point where I'm not even sure what to believe as far as what's coming out. I just know that I don't 
support, uh, you know, the Biden and NATO expansion. And I certainly don't support Putin. And, you know, the thug, and when you look at Putin, I know there's a lot of people think Putin is based. Putin is wonderful. Putin did the exact same thing on COVID restrictions in Russia as uh, as Trudeau did in Canada. Um, you know, Putin's done a number of other very draconian things in Russia that we would decry in in, in a Western country. So it's it. The media continues to tell us, oh, we, we, there are no binary choices when it comes to the alphabet people. Oh, yeah, you got to be, you know, non-binary. But now they tell us you have a binary choice. It's either NATO or Russia. How about neither? How about neither one? Um, and and I, I just don't see why I have to support either side in this thing. I, I'd rather see the conflict end. I think this is this is an interesting point that you raise, um, James. Uh, you know, Ryan is mistrustful after two years of being lied to with the scamdemic, after two years of of the of the COVID charade. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting to me, at least, James, that Fox News and NBC and CBS and ABC are all in agreement. Zelensky's the good guy. Putin's the bad guy. That's it. And, uh, and oh, by the way, Taylor Swift agrees with that as well. So, you know, w- when everybody lines up, I, I sort of feel like I don't, I don't really trust what's going on, James. You know, thanks for making those points. What, what's really interesting, at least to me, from a perspective of having been through something like this, um, uh, you know, in my uh, 20s, you know, we had the uh, problem of Afghanistan, Iraq, 9-11, and um, how we all sort of jumped in very quickly to proclaim uh, France the enemy of uh, freedom because they didn't give their own uh, views on what they thought was going on. Or, you know, they didn't want to initially jump on that support to invade Iraq. And so we came up with this whole thing and called it Freedom Prize. Right. Turns out, you know, 20 plus years later, you know, uh, France was right to hold that uh, they needed more time to consider what was going on. And so we have now this Internet thing. It's blowing up. People left and right are so quick to give their opinions on things they don't necessarily understand. And I'm not saying the Ukraine people are not under uh, a very difficult plight. Of course, they are. Uh, They might be in the middle of what, what I would consider a political tug of war. So this this is essentially, you know, uh, the Eastern Bloc of the globalist agenda, the New World Order versus the West, the Western Bloc of the globalist New World Order, you know, and they're tugging at this middle and they really want to uh, to to push, you know, this this idea that uh, one side is evil and the other side is, you know, is, is, is good. You know, and of course, the problems are more complex than that. You know, uh, no one is talking about this, but, you know, I the, the way I considered Obama as having risen from nothing, you know, back in 2006 and seven to becoming a, a world power. For me, that was very uh, interesting. And I, I took something from that in, in having researched his history to kind of realize this is this major actor here just came out of nowhere in the same way uh, Zelensky has come out of nowhere. You know, of course, he was an actor. Uh, in his former life and whatever, and now he's on a world stage. But everything he does seems to be very carefully crafted. It's yeah. it's, it's it's a very excellent, uh, you, you know, a, a vision that he has given people. And uh, the, so yeah. this whole thing has been manipulated. Whether or not, you know, um, I'm, I'm wrong. Of course, I can be very wrong. But at least to my eyes, it seems very manipulated. 
And, you know, I, it's unfortunate that the people of Ukraine have to deal with this and they're dealing with, you know, the East and the West, you know, the West under uh, NATO right now, obviously, and the U.S., you know, but you have, like Bill was saying, you have, a, or you play the video of Trump, we, we have these countries that are heavily now dependent on Russia for energy. That is very strange to me that we're considering a world war with all these countries heavily dependent on uh, on getting energy from Russia. So what's going to happen in the end? You're going to have countries paired off, you know, one side for the Eastern China Russia alliance and the other side for NATO for the for the UN. So this is not this for me is not you know an either or. I'd rather both not exist. All right. So we've had, I mean, this is an interesting point, Ben, I think you have stronger opinions one way versus so far what we've heard is, you know, I, the, I, I usually do about most things. I'm calling you by the way, from uh, Fatima in Portugal. From Fatima. Which, yeah. Uh, and and yeah. I want to talk about Fatima during this conversation. You woke up this morning at 2 a.m. to join the run. Yeah, I'm it's uh, 2.45 here, so I'll, I'll try to be coherent. But if I'm <laughs> <not coherent>, uh, <laughs> but, 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 but doesn't James make a good point, uh, Ben, in terms of you have Zelensky, who is a, a Jewish comedian who has come from obscurity to now representing freedom around the world and and has the unanimous support of all global media uh, and cultural icons. I mean, he is the good guy. That's what they tell us. And I think you believe that. But, wh but why, why, why should I agree with, you know, Alec Baldwin? Oh, dear. Where to start, guys? Um, about Zelensky first. He's, he's not only a, a, a Jewish uh, comedian. He's a very liberal, progressive Jewish comedian, uh, personally. But, you know, let's look back at uh, Winston Churchill, who uh, led the, uh, until you guys joined the war, the uh, the fight for freedom in the Second World War against Nazism. He drank a bottle of brandy every day. I mean, you know, he was a drunk. So I don't think we should look particularly to um, personal failings, political or otherwise. Uh, uh, you know, a war leader can suddenly come out of, of nowhere, as, as Zelensky has done, and, and prove himself a a very able leader at a time of crisis. So, um, uh, you know, it's not a cops and robbers show either. You know, it's not as binary as as who's the goody and who's the baddie. It is a very, very complex situation with a long, long history, which goes back way before Joseph Biden or Trump or even NATO. It goes back a thousand years. Um, there's so much to say. I, I don't even know where to start, to be quite honest. But uh, maybe I should go back to 1991, um, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the uh, signing by the presidents of Belarus, uh, Yeltsin for Russia, and uh, the then president of um, the uh, Soviet uh, Republic of Ukraine in a Belarusian forest, uh, a document which effectively broke up the Soviet Union and gave those three former uh, constituent parts of the Soviet Union uh, their sovereign independence. Uh, Ukraine was completely broke, totally broke, and um, uh, stayed broke as um, you know the, the economy completely collapsed and um, uh, whatever was left was, was, was rifled by those at the top. Um, an extremely corrupt country back in the 1990s. It still is now, but less so. 
Um, the same thing happened in Russia, of course, and in, in Belarus as well. Um, you have a large number of Russian speakers in uh, the East. Uh, they've been there since about the 18th century. And of course, you have Crimea, which uh, Khrushchev had given to Ukraine in a fit of, um, well, a fit of something back in the 1950s, which uh, Russians um, had taken from Turkey originally and uh, felt very, very, very attached to, uh, fully Russian speaking in the main. And uh, how did Ukraine deal with its Russian minority? Not very well. It, although despite that uh, statement, uh, very few people uh, remember that there were referenda in both Crimea and in eastern Ukraine, uh, the, the Donetsk, Lugansk regions, as to whether they should stay in the Ukraine or join Russia. And, and in both referenda, they voted to, to stay with Ukraine. So Ukraine had a chance to, to really cement those two regions into itself. And I would say that they failed, um, uh, both in terms of uh, very weak government from Kiev, uh, the rise of uh, Ukrainian nationalism or, or its reappearance, having been virtually destroyed by the uh, communist repression. Um, and, uh, and they alienated those regions over the next 20 years until we get to 2014, when you have the uh, uh, really big mistake of the Ukrainian Kiev government, which was the language law, effectively making those Russian speakers feel that their entire culture and their, their language was uh, was no longer wanted, would no longer mm -hmm. be legal. Think about uh, Ireland, maybe, um, when uh, uh, we in Britain effectively destroyed Irish culture by by banning the use of the Gaelic language. You take a you take a nation's language away or a people's language away. You you take their whole uh, identity. So that was the, the the big mistake of of Ukraine. Very weak government from Kiev. No economic support, and a feeling in the east that their whole culture was was going to be taken away from them by this uh, rise of, of of Ukrainian nationalism. And didn't so to that, that extent. I mean, didn't didn't we effectively uh, through covert actions replace the Ukrainian government with pro-U.S. Uh, government? In no, I think that's grossly overstated. Grossly overstated. And the uh, the the Maidan. I mean, I see so much on Twitter and social media about uh, Maidan was a creation of the U.S. embassy. I think that's utter nonsense. There were there is an enormous feeling of uh, national identity by uh, on the part of the Ukrainians. And um, uh, Yanukovych was seen quite rightly as being a, 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 Soviet, a, a Russian puppet, a Moscow puppet, who was uh, completely in hock uh, uh, to Putin personally and to the Russian state. And, um, uh, you know, the story of Ukrainian nationalism is a long one. It's not very pretty at times. It's involved uh, back in the 1920s, early 1920s, enormous pogroms against uh, its, the Jewish population, particularly of West and South Ukraine. And it involves a gentleman called Stepan Bandera, who um, is uh, vilified by the Russian speakers as a, as a Nazi, um, but revered by the Western and Southern Ukrainians uh, as an anti-communist uh, fighter. In fact, he was both. 
uh, at the start of the Second World War, um, he actually uh, effectively joined the Nazis in their uh, advance on uh, on the rest of Ukraine. But that, even that is understandable, given what the communists from 1922 had done to Ukraine. I mean, That's remember, right. in between times, you've got the 1932 to 33 uh, deliberate forced starvation of the Ukrainian peasantry. And it, that was designed to destroy the Western Ukrainian peasantry. It was designed to do it. Yeah. And up to maybe 10 million of them starved to death. So when the Germans came in, they, they were seen as liberators. Uh, it was a big mistake Bandera made. He eventually fought against the Nazis and the communists both. But he was seen by the uh, by Moscow as being a, a, a renegade and an anti-communist partisan. And, and uh, his movement after the Second World War uh, went to the forests. They continued to fight for a number of years, but, but were absolutely wiped out. So um, he's, uh, uh, Bandera is a, is a hero to the Western Ukrainians and a devil to the Eastern Ukrainians. So some of these right-wing groups like uh, Pravi Sektor and uh, the Azov Battalion have Bandera as their, their hero. And this is anathema to, uh, to both the Eastern Ukrainians, the Russian speakers, and to Moscow. So, you know, there have been some mistakes made on the Ukrainian side. There's no doubt about that. However, however, none of that, in my view, um, uh, uh, compensates for the internal processes in Russia itself and in the mind of the man who rules it, which have resulted in this absolute catastrophe that we face now. And it really is a, uh, a, a 1939 moment. We're facing a man who will very shortly not just be an authoritarian in Russia, but it, but it's actual formal, clear dictator. We really are at that point. And, and speaking um, of speaking of Putin and his and his ties, I want to I want to get uh, Brother Martin in the conversation, and then after that, we're going to play some videos, and we'll go around uh, in a circle, and everyone kind of react to it. I think that'd be an interesting way to drive the discussion about what's happening in Ukraine. But Brother Martin, um, it's clear that we know Putin for 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 some of his, uh, you know, th there there are some definitely some good things that he's done in terms of you know morally good things for standing for traditional family. Uh, rejecting pornography, uh, you know, supporting a, a traditional form of Christianity, although it is charismatic. But he's also KGB. And I wonder if you could just help us understand. I mean, I can't I can't piece it together. What, you know, the, between the, the, the Russian factions of the Eastern Church and the other factions, um, what we do know, and this is what you tweeted uh, a couple days ago, and I thought that was really interesting, is that you know it was basically the Russians that injected liberation theology into the Western Church. That's what that's the theology that Bergoglio grew up with in Argentina, and has taken all the way to Rome with him. So um, the Russian Church not so good. Is Putin? Uh, He's part of that, obviously, and you know it's easy to look at the imagery of Putin in a church, or it looks like he's doing something Catholic, but then at the same time you realize he's KGB. So, like, what what's the deal? And so, I apologize to everybody who's listening to this in a sense that I don't know if they expect to be lectured about history, 
but when it becomes when when something so dramatic so important as as a war uh, breaks out it's important to look at all the details uh, and all the circumstances that eventually led up to this and so that we're not misled um but, but looking into the spiritual side of russia um ben was right to say that this goes back a thousand years um, because spiritually when russia was being formed vladimir one of the the kings of russia um became a christian because he wanted to marry the the sister of the emperor of constantinople and the emperor of constantinople being a christian an orthodox christian they've already separated from um rome at that time that you can only marry my my sister if uh you become a christian and so he became a christian uh he married the the sister of uh the emperor of constantinople byzantium and he eventually he became saint vladimir and so if you look at uh the Ukrainian military symbol, there's uh, an emblem with three points on it. And that's actually the trident of St. Vladimir. Vladimir is held very, uh, there's a deep devotion to St. Vladimir in the Ukrainian, uh, in Ukraine, and also in Russia, because at that point, they were, that territory was the same. And then later on in the thousand years that Ben was talking about, Russia expanded. Um, that's kind of the birthplace of Christianity in that territory. Both Vladimir Putin, uh, since he took over in 2009 uh, of Russia, and Sherik um, have have spoken about the, a spiritual space of Ukraine and Russia. Basically, it's it's like a spiritual nationalism. Um, really, what orthodoxy is, each patriarch has a jurisdiction and they'll cling tightly to their jurisdiction, trying to pick off other people's jurisdictions by eparchies like the Rokor Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, the United States, the Orthodox. A huge arch archdiocese here in the United States, of course, because there's uh, there's money here, um, and then of course it gets it gets spread everywhere. Um, both Putin and um, Patriarch Kirill have spoken of the same spiritual space. Uh, even more, both members were members of Kirill and were members of the KGB. Back in back in the seventies, uh, Patriarch Kirill was actually metropolitan. Uh, Long Russian and he was the designated person. Uh, it ends in of and something of because he's Russian, but it was a delegate to the World Council of, of Churches, who was pushing liberation theology into Latin America. Now you remember the message of Fatima saying Russian errors was, was spread to the world if you don't create a lot of merit. Patriarch Kirill and Putin were the very people that were pushing these errors. Now, they were using religion to push their Marxist error all across the world, which is why I deeply believe that uh, Putin's uh, kissing icons, a lot of right in, in Orthodox Church, right beside Patriarch Europe, it's all political theater. It's, not, it's completely dishonest. And there, there are big politics that are coming out in Orthodoxy.com, all that kind of stuff that are, that are calling him out for it. It's all political theater. Why? Because they're experts manipulating religion to push their Marxist errors, and one of the, the tweets that I that I tweeted was precisely the, the one of the messages of Fatima was that tackle uh, the family, of course, excess divorce and remarriage up to three times. Oh, but it's a penitential marriage if it's after the first time. It's penitential um, up to three times. Let's still break up family divorce. No, at all. They're still finding ways. To, pre to preach a, a conservative moral message, but they're manipulating it to continue their Marxist theology. They're experts at this. Why would they say, oh, let's ban pornography? There's some ulterior motive. They're, they're, it, it's, playing a game. It's, it's political theater. 
to push these measures because look at this current war and uh, related to St. Augustine's just war theory. It's not a defensive war. It's just a matter that Putin's admitting defeat that somebody else better test than he did. Uh, in the past two years, he's been waging war against his neighbors while NATO's been expanding. Well, what has he been doing? What has he been, what has he been doing? Um, so that's, I guess my t- uh, two cents on the tape of, of somewhat a brief history of the yeah. or, or Russian Orthodox Church, how it's um, involved politi- in politics of each individual country. Um, and why Kiev is also so important to Russia, and that Kiev was the first metropolitan seat of the Russians, but then it moved later on to Moscow, which is why the major archbishop of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is in Kiev, and they won't be granted uh, patriarchal status because uh, of the patriarch of Moscow. Let's go. Um, let's go clockwise, and let's do maybe thirty or sixty second uh, segment reactions to the following videos. I have Condoleezza Rice. Uh, I have Nancy Pelosi. I have uh, I have Joy Behar uh, from The View. Hillary Clinton. Lots of people weighing in on this. Um, it's it's incredible. It's incredible how everybody is on the same page. Ryan, you you're first up with Condi. Condi says that invading a sovereign nation is a war crime. How self-aware is she? Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. <laughs> I mean, I think we're at, at, at just a real basic, basic point there. Well, um, I agree. It is certainly against every principle of international law and international order. And that's why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions mm-hmm. and punishments is also a part of it. And I think the world is there. Uh, certainly NATO is there. He's, he's managed to unite NATO in ways that I didn't think I would ever see again after the end of the Cold War. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Spot, <laughs> uh, kettle. Um, yeah, if there's a little sovereign nation. Um, it was called Iraq, and we invaded it on the basis of the CGI mobile production centers that were uh, being you know, portrayed on Fox News on that very same news channel. And yet, um, for, for whatever reason, that, that, that was fine. You know, there, there was, there's a painting by uh, Picasso. Um, there's some debate about whether this event actually t- you know, took place among some people, but I think it's pretty certain it did in Guernica, right? Where um, Franco, uh, you know, asked for assistance from the German Luftwaffe to bomb the Basques. And the Basques were, you know, solid communist, communist enemies of Franco, et cetera. And Picasso was horrified by this. Uh, you know, a larger, more powerful nation bombing a, a populace largely defensive. And, and he made a painting about this. And he, um, you know, it was put up in the UN eventually, years later. And when Colin Powell came to give his presentation on why they should go into Iraq, that well, they happened to notice, hey, wait, wait, look what's behind him. And so what did they do? They covered it up. We don't need the message of, uh, you know, a you know, reminder of uh, what happened the last time. If we have that principle, you can just go and invade sovereign nations over your, your geopolitic. Um you know, and so in that, what do we find, of course, with weapons of mass destruction, all these things was a lie. And then it was admitted to be a lie afterward. And then, oh, no, don't worry about that. That was back then. And now, I mean, it's, it's tone deaf in the extreme for Condoleezza Rice now to play that game. And even though I am very much against Putin invading Ukraine, if 
if that is going on the way it's being portrayed in, in the media, um, I'm absolutely opposed to that. But I'm also opposed to it when we do it, too. And the thing is, you're never going to get peace as long as it's always this double standard of what's well, okay when we do it. The U.S. is the biggest agent of coups, regime changes uh, all over the world. And and yet we're going to scream and cry about, um, I mean, about Putin in so many ways. And again, I don't support what Putin's doing, but you can see the NATO expansion going east. And, yeah. and it has goaded him into this war. Whether whether we like it or not, and yeah. so whereas yeah. Saddam Hussein, you know, I don't that that whole thing was just a, just a ridiculous mess. All right, James, uh, picking up on what Ryan said, do we have any moral authority at all? Do we have any credibility at all to sit there and say, "Hey, how dare you invade a sovereign country?" When uh, how many countries are we operating in right now as we speak? How many dronings are happening tonight while we're uh, live on? On YouTube? You're on mute, Dave. Yeah, it's it's laughable because if uh, we look back at the history of the covert operations used to infiltrate uh, other countries and turn them over, I mean, we well, when did we this start in around 1953 or 54? That's really the first time this uh, sort of went uh, ballistic, you know, uh, and we've been doing that since 53 or 54, I think 54, and uh, we haven't batted an eye. So I, it, it's really ridiculous that, uh, you know, Dr. Rice is on national television talking about this as though uh, we, we've had no part in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the infiltration of governments uh, going back that far. Um, so I don't know where she's sitting on a high horse and uh, just speaking as though we don't have any me- recollection of history whatsoever. You're muted, Mike. Mike, you're muted, Mike. Yeah. For Kyle Rice, Bill, one of the architects of the neocon movement, to sit there and condemn... Uh, you know, interventionism by any other global power. It just, it's, it's so astonishing to me, isn't it? Well, it, uh, it takes me back to some of the previous comments that James and Ryan made earlier about uh, something about the whole narrative that is coming together. Here you have Fox, but you'll see much the same thing on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, CBS, PBS, etc., So we have, as we have been uh, exposing in the New American Magazine for decades, and we just had a big fold-out issue of the magazine that goes through all of the media and all of the so-called experts, the current and former uh, leaders in the various uh, cabinets, etc., Condoleezza Rice being one of them. And so you see that there is this huge club of globalists, and there actually are organizations which are orchestrating this. And we focus a lot on the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, Bilderberg, etc. Those we've been writing about those for years. These are actual groups, the Aspen Institute and Brookings, etc., where 
they have formed a whole globalist ecology in the media, in think tanks, academe, and those who serve in both Republican and Democratic administrations. And we see them all come together, of course, every year at Davos at the World Economic Forum with this global Build Back Better, where we see the same narrative being broadcast on the state media and the commercial media of each country and of the European Union and of basically covering the globe. And so when you see all of this being orchestrated, some of you may recall the movie Wag the Dog came out in 97, 98, I believe. Uh, that was, it was a big Hollywood production. Dustin Hoffman uh, was nominated for an Academy Award in that, et cetera. This was, this was based, uh, it was a David Mamet uh, screenplay. Uh, Barry Levinson produced it. And they actually, uh, in there, dramatically showed a president who was at that time similar to Clinton. He had a, a, uh, uh, an affair with an intern and it was, he was going to get it. He was going to get impeached. And so he started a war. Uh, and then, uh, then he started, uh, uh, and so that's what, that's what Clinton did. Uh, and basically it was, it's, it's really, if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in 30 years, you ought to, ought to take a look at it. Uh, because it shows how Dustin Hoffman and his Hollywood people, he he was a, uh, it plays in the movie, a uh, uh, Hollywood producer, and they create actually uh, narratives like this. They, they uh, create phony heroes and fictional scenes which look real and convince everybody that this is what's happening in the war. And I'm reminded of that by what we see with all these talking heads like Condoleezza Rice and all these various uh, Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's on the news every night. And then we saw this, this uh, uh, dramatic uh, uh, presentation put when Boris Johnson is confronted by this journalist, we're told, a Ukrainian journalist. The, the, the woman was uh, Daria Kaloniak. She was a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. She is still on there if you go on their website. And she has she was also in one of the the Biden campaigns for 2020 on his television commercials. And yet she is not she gave this very impassioned plea. You must help us. We're crying out for you. Uh, and, it, and it is a very tear-jerking presentation, and all the media have gone viral with it, and it tugs at your heart because everyone feels for the people of Ukraine, and we should, and we should be praying for them and doing what we can to help them. It's the same for the people of Russia. Uh, we should uh, not be uh, rooting for either of them to be uh, destroyed in this war, but there is a tremendous amount of manipulation and completely false uh, narrative being presented before our eyes every day. And so it's, it's very difficult to sort all of this out. Yeah. Uh, ben, I saw you speak up or, or uh, you know, I know you wanted to jump in and I want to give you the opportunity to, uh, to respond directly to Ryan's comment, um, which actually I agree <clears throat> with, which is that as NATO continues to expand eastward, um, 
it almost forces Putin's hand. And I, I hearken back to the idea of the Russians in the height of the Cold War in the 1960s putting putting missiles in Cuba and how we reacted to that. And here we are goading, uh, goading the Russians, uh, expanding NATO, uh, trying to get Zelensky to join NATO. Uh, it looks like he probably will. He's certainly going to join the European Union. Um, what, what's the difference between the Cuban Missile Crisis and what Putin is, exp- is experiencing at home? Well, there's, there's a vast difference. The, the difference is that um, communist uh, Russia really did threaten the United States in Cuba, um, but uh, NATO doesn't threaten Russia and Putin knows it. Putin's actions got nothing whatsoever to do with the expansion east of NATO. Uh, in fact, uh, one should remember that um, uh, Boris Yeltsin's signature uh, is on um, the uh, Treaty of Paris documents, which uh, specifically allow NATO to uh, invite anybody it wishes. Um, and uh, uh, not just that, the Helsinki Accord Agreement um, and the actual agreement in the 1990s, the founding document of the NATO-Russia Agreement, specifically states that uh, NATO can invite who it wants. So, you know, Putin's argument is completely false. What it's, what Ukraine is about, guys, is an existential, um, uh, almost a grief, uh, this is one part of it, almost a sense of grief on the part of uh, uh, Russia that they can lose um, from their control their birthplace. It really is as existential as that. It's all about identity. And Moscow, uh, or Russia, the state of Russia, cannot imagine itself without Ukraine. Somebody said earlier that Ukraine was very, very rich in natural resources. Well, there's only one that really matters, and that's its land. It's uh, incredibly fertile. I mean, up to the, the First World War, uh, Ukraine was uh, was feeding the whole of Europe its wheat. And uh, even now, with uh, uh, Ukrainian villages still having never recovered from the 32-33 uh, forced famine, even now it's, still, uh, it's already supplying about 12% of the world's uh, wheat supply. So Russia wants it for that reason. Ru- uh, Ukraine feeds Russia. And yes, there are some other minerals. They have coal in the east particularly, but it's the land that's important. And it's a land from which actually gave birth to the the modern state of Russia. So it's about identity. And um, I'd I'd like to pick up, though, on uh, what uh, Brother Martin was saying about uh, the religious side of it. This is terribly, terribly important. What has happened in the last couple of years The Patriarch of Constantinople um, took away from the uh, uh, Russian Orthodox Church the canonical control of Ukraine and gave it instead to a new body, um, the uh, uh, Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which has since then, in the last two, three, maybe it was three years ago, since that uh, uh, action was taken by Constantinople, Uh, Moscow and Constantinople are now in formal schism, uh, together with the Greek and the Cypriot Orthodox churches who supported Constantinople. 
the new Orthodox Ukrainian church has taken about 1,000 parishes away from the Moscow Patriarchate. Now, this is really fundamental, uh, you know, identity and, and existential stuff. It's, and this is what it's about. It's, it's got very, very little to do with NATO's eastward expansion. Very little at all, if anything, actually. Because Russia knows very well, Putin knows very well that NATO doesn't threaten him. Okay, um, interesting End take. of statement. <laughs> yeah, no, interesting take. Brother Martin, uh, I, I do want to echo something that Ben has, has said, and I don't have specifically an economic video uh, teed up, but it is true that about a quarter of the world's wheat supply now is has been removed from the market. And I don't think I don't think that most consumers understand what's about to happen. Uh, we're talking about food shock, food price shock already in, a, in an inflationary environment in the West, um, already with, uh, you know, so-called global supply chains uh, under duress. Um, it looks like the worst is yet to come, even if there is no world war, there's certainly going to be reverberations in our economy and and how we eat and how we feed ourselves this is serious oh it's lent but i guess also too the first thing actually when i when i saw that news that that bit of news that it was like it's the wheat supply it's the wheat supply first thing in my mind was going back all to Amortis Letitia and allowing adulterers to receive Holy Communion. But the devil is always after the Eucharist. He's always after the Eucharist. And we we need that wheat. Um, it could have been anything. It could have been sausages. It could have been cows, dairy, eggs, whatever, but always wheat. Uh, that was the first thing on my mind is, is, is to really recognize how, how diabolical this is. Um. Mm-hmm. But I get to something that I'm mentioning about the, the spiritual side of things. Um, I guess to, to reemphasize something that I said earlier is that Kiev is really the, the birthplace of Russia. And so that's why the theory is going around that Putin is really just trying to invade Ukraine to take eastern part of Ukraine, take Kiev with him, and the Ukrainians can have all the west of Ukraine. He doesn't care about once Kiev. And it, and it does fit the, the impression that we have of, of Russia being very nationalistic. Um, to take Kiev because that's the birthplace of Russia, the birthplace of its Christianity. As I said before, they're, they're ma- the KGB are masters at manipulating religion to, to meet their ends. Uh, and was, uh, of course, they, they want to have that background of saying, oh, we're completely justified in, in, in going after Kiev with, with 1,000 lives per day. I mean, that's, that's what mm-hmm. at least Ukraine is putting out, um, is that Russia is losing at, at least 1,000 members of its armed forces per day in this, in this invasion. Um, I think they're up to to like nine thousand right now, and it's it's gone up like nine. Years. Um, at that cost, for a city, for its birth birthplace, is for its national identity. Um, I I can't by for theory alone. I I I don't know how I can justify their, their invasion. Um, at the same time, I understand Ukraine is becoming a secular state. They're coming secular state because every everybody in Europe wants to be like. States. You go to visit Europe, every person there wants to dress like an American, talk like an American, dance like an American, the music like Americans. Everything people are complaining that Ukraine is such a, a, a degenerate society is because they're imitating the United States. 
And so what am I supposed to do as an American? If Russia evades us, am I just supposed to say, oh, yeah, Russia, come on and, you know, conquer Washington, D.C.? I can't see Americans doing that either, you know, complaining about the degeneracy of Ukraine. So this is this is less of a political issue. For, for me personally, all I can do is think about the U- Ukrainian Greek Catholics because also them, they there's a huge history of the Russian Orthodox persecuting the Ukrainian Greek Catholics. Um, actually, one of the priests that, that, that is very dear to me, Father John Melnick, um, canonically, from his birthright, his daddy's Ukrainian Greek Catholic. He is a Ukrainian Greek Catholic. He became Roman whenever he entered the Augustinians and was ordained a priest. Um, his birth, his, uh, his birthright, R.I.E., is the Ukrainian Greek Catholics, and he he told me a story once of a of a of a widow of a priest who was uh, a, a Ukrainian Greek Catholic priest, and he was martyred by the Soviet Union, and he gave father and she gave Father John his crucifix, um, basically t- telling him to to have the same the same strength as her husband, who was a priest also, um, who, who chose to die for the faith than, than to submit to the KGB. Uh, and so now you have the KGB disguised as Orthodox Christians um, now wanting to conquer Ukraine. And so you submit all these these people, this, the entire Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, um, to not only the KGB, but also to these, um, these bastard Russian Orthodox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Um, Just a quick programming note. So we're going to uh, continue doing lightning rounds. And instead of having six people react to each video, we'll just do a couple reactions because some of these videos are so absurd. But I do want to point out uh, what happened today. Breaking news with regards to wheat is that Hungary, who's uh, kind of based uh, Eastern European nation, uh, very Catholic, uh, at least in within its leadership. Uh, is saying, hey, guess what? We're not exporting any wheat to anybody uh, because they can see what's coming. That's going to really tighten global food supply chains. Um, okay, uh, Ryan, <laughs> Joy Behar on The View. She's really upset about this whole Ukraine thing because now it's going to be, look, for two years she's wanted to travel to Italy and take a vacation and, and with the pandemic she couldn't do it and now she can't go because of this damn world war. Estimates are 50,000 Ukrainians will be dead or wounded and that this is going to start a humanitarian crisis, a refugee crisis in Europe. We're talking about 5 million people that that are going to be displaced. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking to hear what is going to happen. Well, I'm scared of what's going to happen in in Western Europe, too. Yeah. You know, you just you plan a trip. You want to go there. I want to go to Italy for four years. I haven't been able to make it because of of uh, the pandemic. And now this, you know, it's, yeah. it's like, who's going to, what's going to happen there? Yeah. I mean, right. I, I, Joy, I was in Italy two months ago. You can go. Don't worry. You won't get COVID. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's again, why everyone hates the mainstream media, the must flee TV. And I mean, the, the absurdity of this is like, you know, whatever happens to be going on over there, people are dying. Okay, people are right now that they are dying over there for whatever it is that is going on there. And she's whining that she can't take a vacation over there. Oh, because there's this war broken. Oh, no. Oh, oh, my goodness. It's tone deaf. Uh, And it's the very thing that entitlement that the media has that it thinks it can just kind of preside over all these things and dictate how everyone lives their little lives. But they get to go travel the world like like. 
uh, princes or whatever, and it's fine. Oh, how terrible! I can't travel like like this prince I am. And it, it, I think it. Uh, there's another story, which um, I'm going to pull up here. Um, this one. Canadian news outlet removes company logo from vehicles as public trust in media continues to plummet. And, and this is from LifeSite, although it sources from somewhere else originally, but it, and they go on about how CTV news, you know, is, is taking down their, their logos because uh, they're afraid of being vandalized because they're getting so much hate because nobody trusts them anymore. Here we go. Jerry Thompson, the sad day for me, uh, CTV Etc. Edmonton has made the decision to remove the branding from our vehicles for safety. I'm proud of the excellent and vital work we do, perhaps more important now than ever. Kind of like the oh, Washington boy. Compost, democracy dies in the darkness and all that bit. Uh, I'm proud to represent that in public, but it's just not safe right now. Yeah, because everybody is tired of the lies and everyone is tired of media you know, in their arrogance, like it was during, yeah. during the scandemic. And this is just yet another uh, manifestation of how absolutely and utterly tone deaf everyone in the media is to reality. It, it is. It is tone deaf. And, you know, you know who else was tone deaf recently, James? Former President Trump was tone deaf recently. Here he is on on national radio. Uh, let me let me find the right video where he's talking about how Congress used to be bought and paid for by Israel. And that's a good thing. But nowadays, with the rise of AOC and other liberals, we're, we're not bought and paid for by Israel anymore. But if you vote for him in 2024, we will be. Why, did, why does this matter? Well, because a lot of people are saying that Israel is going to mediate between Ukraine and Russia. Well, you know, the biggest change I've seen in Congress is Israel literally owned Congress. You understand that 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it was so powerful. It was so powerful. And today it's almost the opposite. Uh, you have between AOC and Omar and these people that hate Israel. They hate it with a passion. They're controlling Congress. And Israel is not a force in Congress anymore. It's, I mean, it's just amazing. I've never seen such a change. And we're not talking about over a very long period of time. But I think you know exactly what, I, what I'm saying. They had such power. Israel had such power, and rightfully, over Congress, and now it doesn't. It's mm -hmm. incredible, actually. Rightfully had power, James. Rightfully had power over the United States Congress, and doesn't. And you're muted. <laughs> I, I can't believe I just heard him say that. I mean, uh, first of all, it's a great admission. Um, and sometimes, you know, he speaks without necessarily checking, uh, you know, his audience, you know, the audience being the American people. And so he said something that a lot of people maybe did not know or were unaware of, or maybe just didn't want to hear, or actually there are people who think it's a good thing, right? And let's just say that there's some neoconservatives who think it's a good thing that we answer to a foreign power, you know, being that, uh, you know, Israel is to, is basically the, uh, you know, the, the country that has been biblically, you know, uh, consecrated as, uh, you know, this new New Jerusalem, right? So a lot of conservatives have basically given into this idea 
of uh, being Zion, you know, Zionist, you know, Zionistic would is what uh, being American is all about, you know, uh, and this is it's a tragedy. This is where we get uh, policies uh, that come from uh, uh, Richard Haas, you know, or uh, you know, uh, uh, Crystal, or uh, all these other neocons out there pushing the globalist agenda, you know. So we don't have really a, an identity. Our identity is given to us by outside forces. And we're so happy to to embrace that identity as you know being American. It's it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's a sad it's a sad state of affairs. No, it is sad. It's sad and it's tragic. Um, as the as the news closes in on former President Trump, Bill, uh, the January six events really weigh heavily on his legacy. It appears as though uh, you know the, the 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 investigators, the 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 January six committee. Uh, are getting closer and closer to his family. Uh, it's my understanding that you have some a sort of inside baseball on on that whole issue. Uh, maybe now is a good time to weave that in. I don't know what uh, we have time for, but yes, the current issue of the New American Magazine, the print issue, uh, the entire print issue is on our website now at thenewamerican.com. And the current issue, which if you go to the homepage and scroll down, you'll see the actual magazine. Uh, the cover story is uh, what really happened on January 6th. And it's really a cover story package of five stories, and which is most of the magazine. And I don't usually do this, but in this particular case, I wrote all of the stories uh, because I was immersed in all of that. And it's a big it's a big story. So that's why we broke it down into five stories. Uh, The beginning story uh, really tells a a huge part of it, the the beginning, the opening. And I quote from The New York Times, because it is, of course, the journal of record. Uh, It is the uh, one that all the rest of the media still refer to uh, uh, for their a lot of their talking points. And. The key editorial on January 1st of this year, five days before the anniversary, was a collective editorial by the editorial board. And the title was Every Day is January 6th Now. Mm -hmm. And it's a a very important editorial because it really is telling us what then all of the rest of the media have been telling us, uh, that we're not going to let this go. This so-called insurrection, which uh, consider this, the United States has more firearms in private hands, in private possession than any other country in the world and any other country in history. We have more per capita. We have lots of guns, which I think is a good thing. Uh, And yet this is the first insurrection in history, which President Biden called it an armed insurrection. Hillary Clinton calls it an armed insurrection. Kamala Harris, everybody else, all the media call it an armed insurrection. But let me ask you, uh, there were there's tons of video. There's over 15,000 hours of video, which the, the select committee has that Nancy Pelosi put together, the so-called bipartisan committee that she stacked. Um, they have over 15,000 hours, and there are thousands of hours which you can view on online, on YouTube, on Rumble, on other platforms. How many firearms did these insurrectionists take into the Capitol? Zero. How many firearms did they fire within the Capitol? 
Zero. Of all the pictures and all of the videos, how many do you see? Zero. The only firearms inside the Capitol were, were possessed by the Capitol Police, the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police, the FBI, Federal Protective Services, and the other federal agents that were in the thing. Who fired a firearm? Did any of the so-called insurrectionists? No. The only firearm fired was by a Capitol Police officer. He fired one shot, as far as we know, and it killed Ashley Babbitt, one of the protesters who was an Army veteran and a, a combat veteran, and uh, unarmed, a woman. The only other uh, fatality inside of the Capitol was another woman, Roseanne Boyle, who was trampled and beaten by the Capitol Police. Uh, although the uh, that's what now the new videos that are that have been brought out show. Uh, but she, according to the official uh, coroner's report, she died of uh, excess prescription drug overdose, accidental overdose. Uh, the other two deaths that took place on that day were outside of the Capitol, and they were men who were in their 60s with high blood pressure who had heart attacks. The most famous one, and here again, we get to the theater and the orchestrated false images and false stories that are planted out there. The most famous or infamous case here is Officer Brian Sicknick, which the New York Times, the Journal of Record, stated without any evidence and without uh, providing any documentation, said that he was beaten to death with a fire extinguisher by Trump supporters. Totally false. There's nothing, uh, no evidence for that. And in fact, he was not, he was not injured inside. He, he was, came outside. He was having a stroke. They later found out he didn't, he didn't get any treatment, although some of the protesters there who had medical training said, told the other officers, hey, you got to get this guy to a hospital. He needs medical attention. I think he's having a stroke. They didn't do anything. And he went home and he then he thought he was OK. He called his family, said he's just fine. And then later, uh, then the next day he was taken to the hospital and he died. So we, we were told over and over again there were five deaths as a result of these people storming the Capitol, which they called an insurrection, a white nationalist, white supremacist, racist, neo-Nazi. All of those terms were, were used over and over again. And I've quoted in, in our articles many of the members of Congress and talking heads of the media who have repeated that over and over again. And of course, it's all a lie. Uh, the, and we also get into uh, the stories about agent provocateurs who actually led the event and things of that nature. And uh, so we, we cover quite a bit of ground in that, and we are continuing to do that because today more uh, broke on that with supposedly new smoking guns that they claim they have that are going to incriminate uh, President Trump and other members of his entourage. Uh, but we've seen that over and over again over the last five years with the Russia Gate, with the Mueller probe, etc. We kept hearing that, oh, now we have smoking gun, uh, the final evidence. And of course, it doesn't. It turns out to be a complete nothing burger.
it, it always turns out to be all hat, no cattle, as we would say in Texas, or uh, all sizzle, no steak, as we would say in Kansas City. Um, ben, we're talking about the Amer- the former American president. I want to talk a little bit about the current prime minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson. Here he is being questioned, and reminder, you're on mute. Uh, by a Ukrainian reporter. I'd love to get your reaction to her question and Boris's, not only his 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 verbal reaction, but his non-verbal reaction to this question. Because you are afraid. Because NATO is not willing to defend. Because NATO is afraid of a World War III, but it is already started. And these are Ukrainian children who are there taking the hit. You're talking about more sanctions, Prime Minister, but Roman Abramovich is not sanctioned. He's in London. His children are not in the bombardments. His children are there in London. Putin's children are in Netherlands, in Germany, in mansions. Where are all these mansions seized? I don't see that. I see that my family members, that my team members are saying that we are crying. We don't care what to run. This is what is happening, Prime Minister. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for... uh, for your questions, and, and thank you for, for getting here today. I'm, I'm glad that you, you have been able to, to get here. And uh, look, I just want to, to say that I'm acutely conscious that there is not enough that we can do uh, to, as, the, as the UK government uh, to help in the way that you want. And I've got to be honest about that. Ben, it seems like the left always manipulates our emotions. I'm always on the alert to that. This woman breaks down in tears and she's making an emotional plea. Should I believe what she's saying? Should I be? Am I being too conspiratorial? What do you think about Boris? <laughs> I think he's a clown, um, but he's uh, less clownish than any of the other alternatives we currently have in British politics. <laughs> um, yeah, of course, the question is put very emotionally with, with a lot of uh, force and, and, and eloquence. Um, I don't think we do need to be too conspiratorial uh, guys about this because what the lady was saying, whether she's uh, left or right or, or paid directly by George Soros or, or whatever, what she's saying was the truth. Um, I actually have a lot of friends in uh, different places in uh, Ukraine. Um, I spent... Uh, 13 years in all in the former Soviet Union, uh, nearly 11 of those were in Moscow, but I had the opportunity to do quite a bit of uh, traveling uh, around, and I've been to Ukraine quite a number of times. Uh, Since the war started, I've been able to get through to um, uh, an old Russian couple from Moscow who are now retired in Odessa on the uh, the Black Sea coast. It hasn't seen any action yet. Uh, They were okay just very frightened about what was happening, but they're all right. Uh, uh, and uh, But uh, not somebody else, uh, uh, another lady I know from uh, Kharkov, or Kharkiv as the uh, Ukrainians call it, um, I finally, finally was able to get through to her and she was cowering in a bomb shelter with her son, who was absolutely terrified. Um, I didn't hear any bombs or rockets dropping at the time, but, you know, there they were. I haven't been able to get hold of her since then, so I'm I'm hoping everything's all right with her. Um, you know what's going on uh, right this minute is that uh, the Russian army has failed in its uh, uh, immediate uh, uh, 
blitzkrieg, if you like, which was appallingly badly managed and, and uh, operationally uh, executed. And so they've reverted back to type, which is um, start firing the artillery. Um, in the first Chechen War, uh, 1995 to 96, um, the Russian army lost 2,000 soldiers on the first day um, by entering Grozny with a, a tank force which uh, was destroyed by the Chechens immediately. So they withdrew from Grozny and just uh, blasted it to bits over a week. And during that week, they killed 30,000 Russians who were living there. They're just doing exactly the same thing now, set, sitting back and blasting um, the uh, the cities they're, they're surrounded or or they're close to, uh, just, just blasting them to bits. And so I think that lady, uh, actually what she was uh, was saying in, in a very emotional, forceful manner was no less than the truth, I'm sad to say. Uh, Boris, well, what could, he was probably thinking there, oh, yeah, who let this woman in? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, um, you know, his reaction was was uh, he listened to her and, and, and he was honest with her. Um, I'm actually quite happy with uh, Britain's response so far, uh, certainly in terms of military support. Uh, we were the first, actually, to uh, make sure that they had a, a good number of anti-tank weapons. Uh, I think we've sent a lot more since, together with you guys and, and, and others. Um, uh, what we haven't done is really uh, tackle this uh, wall of uh, dirty money, which uh, uh, the City of London has been very happy to handle from uh, trust managers to international uh, law firms to uh, to the banks in London, um, all of whom have done very, very, very well out of their links with uh, with uh, Russian oligarchs and, and, and mini oligarchs and, and ordinary Russians as well, actually. So we, we need to do an awful lot more there. Um, I know the yachts are starting to be uh, confiscated now. Uh, Italy confiscated two oligarch yachts today. Uh, the Germans won the other day. I'm, I'm, I don't know whether any of them are more near uh, near the city of London on the Thames, but if they are, I hope we also take action and, and, and do more. But certainly on the military side, I'm very happy with our response so far. Um, I want to get Ryan's reaction to uh, this Australian TV show where uh, they let a man give his opinion, Ryan, about what's happening in Russia, and he's ethnically a Russian, and he gives a dissenting opinion, and the reaction by, uh, well, the media is pretty telling, I think. So as someone who comes from the Russian community here in Australia, I've been pretty outraged by the narrative created by our media depicting the Ukraine as the good guy and Russia as the bad guy. Believe it or not, there are a lot of Russians here and around the world that support what Putin uh, is doing in the Ukraine, myself included. Uh, since 2014, uh, the Ukrainian government, together with Nazi groups like the Azov Battalion, have besieged the Russian populations in the Donbass, killing an estimated 13,000 people, Can I... according to the United Nations. That's right. That's yeah. Could I finish? Just, just, just quick, quick, quickly finish, and then, and then we'll come to yeah, that, yeah. put that to the panel. So my, my question is, you know, where was your outpouring of grief and concern for those thousands of mostly Russians? Um, okay, question earlier about Russia, and it's been playing on my mind. And, Sasha, people here have been talking about family 
who are suffering and people are dying. And I understand you wanted to ask your question about is there some reasoning for this, but you supported what's happening, hearing that people are dying. And can I just say I'm just not comfortable with you being here? Could, could you please leave? I've, I've been... It's really... No, Sasha, I'm sorry. You, you, you can ask a question. You can ask a question, but we cannot advocate violence. I should have asked you to leave then. It's been playing on my mind, and I'm sorry. So just to save some time, they actually do escort this young man out. Uh, Ryan, when you see people just censoring unpopular opinions, um, does that does that necessarily give weight to the narrative or does that give weight to the unpopular opinion? It would certainly play into that if you're looking at this and you're saying, oh, well, they're throwing him out for even saying anything. Oh, well, you know, it would, it would kind of you know, fit to your mind. Oh, well, maybe there's some truth to what he's saying. I, I don't personally agree that it's right for Putin to go in and you know start invading a sovereign nation um you know and again whatever about what we're seeing and my trust or lack of trust in, in what we're seeing but whatever about that if we're gonna say as they do in Australia we're this wonderful liberal democracy we allow all opinions we allow all this but then as soon as you contradict a, a meta narrative that's been put out by the media oh no you're not allowed here we can't have you in here you you, you got to go you, you, the very fact that you think differently from us means that you have to be you know sent out into exterior darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth as it were i mean that that tells you that you know even if they're right right um it tells you that that really they're not open to free speech. They're not open to diversity of opinions and ideas. You know, democracy dies in the darkness. It's already <laughs> whatever it's supposed. Democracy is even supposed to be. Let it hurry up and die already, because this is just absurdity. As far as I'm concerned, I've never been a fan of democracy anyway. But uh, but look, listening to something like this, it's like it's it's again like we talked about with Joy uh, Behar. It's the hypocrisy of it all. Mm-hmm. It, it's one thing if, if everyone wants to shout the guy down because they don't agree. If you stand up in the in the public square, as it were, and you say something that is extremely unpopular, you have to expect somebody is going to come after you and attack you. That that's just reality. Get a thick skin and deal with it. Um, but then, oh, we can't even allow that here. Um, and that's that's essentially when you set up a dictatorship of ideas. Even if it, this in this case, uh, it happens to be. I happen to agree. You know, in term, at least as far as like, being against Putin. Yeah. Um, if we're going to say predicate society and you got free speech and you get to say your say and then turn around and say, no, actually, you don't get to say your say. Get out of here. It's all hypocrisy. Yeah. And Australia has really excelled at uh, yeah. at enforcing the, the COVID narrative. So, you know, this is not really surprising. James, I want to bring you in and I want to I want to get your reaction, James, to the following video from Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, she appears to be on the campaign trail. I wonder if we're going to see 2024 Hillary versus Trump again. Here she is talking about how, well, here's how we get the Russians. We do to them what we did to them in the 1980s. Where's Charlie Wilson? But remember, uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan uh, back uh, in 1980. And uh, although no country uh, went in, uh, they certainly had a lot of countries uh, supplying 
uh, arms and advice and even some advisors uh, to those who were recruited to fight Russia. It didn't end well for the Russians. Uh, there were other uh, unintended consequences, as we know. But the fact is that a very motivated and then uh, funded and armed uh, insurgency uh, basically drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, the similarities are, are not uh, ones that you should uh, bank on because uh, the terrain, the development uh, in urban areas, et cetera, is so different. But I think that is the model that people are now uh, looking toward. And if there can be sufficient uh, armaments that get in, and they should be able to get in along some of uh, uh, the borders uh, between other nations and Ukraine, uh, and keep the Ukrainian, uh, both their military and their citizen uh, volunteer soldiers supplied, uh, that can continue to stymie Russia. Now, let's be Okay, what what Hillary Rodham Clinton, former Secretary of State, former presidential candidate, former first lady, former senator from the New York from the state of New York, James, what she is saying that we need to do is after two years of hiding in our basements from the sniffles, we need to allow the Ukrainians to die for freedom and we'll ship them some arms and we'll make it very expensive for Russia. Good strategy. You know, I'm sorry. I, I just couldn't keep a straight face throughout that uh, nonsense she was spewing because the first thing when she mentioned uh, Russia, uh, Russia invading uh, Afghanistan and she was t talking so much, but she is talking in, 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 around the real story. You can kind of see her there trying not to get caught in a lie because she was trying so hard to not mention Osama, Osama bin Laden by name. You know, or the fact that uh, Zygmunt uh, Brzezinski was out there training uh, these, you know, fighters, you know, what we now consider to be uh, Al-Qaeda, you know, these men were in, in large basically supported by U.S. government, right? And that's what she was trying so hard not to say. And so I don't know exactly what she has planned or what she's planning but uh, if it's anything like what happened in, in uh, Afghanistan, I don't want anything to, thing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. I, what, the fact that she would bring up Afghanistan as a case study is itself yeah. such, a, such a major it's, turnoff it, to it, me. It, yeah, no, I agree with you. I can't believe that she cites that as – okay, imagine saying Afghanistan is the model for anything besides <laughs> defeat. Right, right. You know, it, it's and, and she stood there or rather she's she sat there and, and giving that answer with a straight face. And I know she she has all these all this imagery of what's gone on within the last 40 years. And yeah. there's no saving that statement or that story. You know, so I'm yeah. not sure what she's playing at. It's, it's absolutely yeah. uh, ridiculous that she would offer that as a solution. No, no, it's 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 stunning, actually. Bill, I want to bring you in. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play like two minutes of Tucker Carlson. And then I'm going to ask you a specific question about banking, finance, and, and SWIFT. Uh, because the jux, the, the, the thrust of his argument is that we have to save our debt-based system, our monetary system. And that's what we need to be concerned about. It's a big yikes for me. So what's happening in Ukraine, whatever its scale, and it's not totally clear right now, but whatever it is, it's a tragedy because war always is a tragedy. And the closer you get to it, the more horrifying 
It seems it's the ugliest thing that men do ever. Vladimir Putin started this war. So whatever the context of the decision that he made, he did it. He fired the first shots. He is to blame for what we're seeing tonight in Ukraine. The question is, once we've established that, and it's obvious, how should the United States respond to what he has done? So within minutes of the outbreak of the war last night, the usual liars on television began leveraging this tragedy for partisan political gain. If you ever watch the aftermath of a school shooting, you're familiar with how they behave. It's contemptible. But we're going to ignore it tonight because there is too much else going on that actually matters. And the main thing that matters in any crisis is deciding what's most important, creating a hierarchy of concern. So until last night, the main purpose of our foreign policy was to prevent Russia from invading Ukraine. Obviously, that failed. At some point, we should figure out why. But what's our top goal now? Well, there's several of them. Here are the first three. First and most obviously, avoid a full-scale war with a nuclear-armed adversary. And to be fair, very few people in Washington want anything like that. War with Russia is so obviously a bad idea. But that doesn't mean we won't have one. Wars often break out accidentally or more often incrementally. Things escalate and the next thing you know, you've got Verdun with many thousands dead. Now that shooting has started in Ukraine, it is entirely possible, no matter what they assure you, that Americans could wind up getting hurt in Eastern Europe. We should prevent that, but preventing it will require wisdom and farsightedness and emotional control, all of which are never in abundant supply in Washington, and especially now that everyone is justifiably upset. Again, what Russia has done is awful, but we could still make it worse. Mark Warner, the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, just announced that Russia could be potentially close to triggering what's known as Article 5 of the NATO alliance. That's a collective defense principle. So if Russia were to launch a cyber attack on Ukraine, Warner explained, an attack that affects nearby NATO members like Poland or Lithuania, then possibly every NATO country, including ours, the United States, would be obligated to declare war on Russia. Here he is explaining. One of the things that I'm gravely concerned about is if Russia unleashes its full cyber power against Ukraine, once you put malware into the wild, in a sense, uh, it knows no geographic boundaries. So if the Russians decide they're going to try to turn off the power, uh, turn off all the electricity all across Ukraine, very likely that may turn off the power in eastern Poland and eastern Romania. That could affect our troops if suddenly hospitals are shut down, if uh, those NATO troops, American troops, somehow have a a car accident because the, the stoplights don't work. Um, we are suddenly in an area of hypothetically um, an Article 5 where one NATO country is attacked. We all have to come to each other's aid. So Warner is certainly right. That could add that hypothetical that he outlined could happen. Any cyber attack on Ukraine could well affect the infrastructure of their Eastern European countries. That would be bad. It would be a crime. The civilized world would deplore it. But Article 5 is not a mechanical mechanism. Human beings have to decide to invoke it. And the question is, is what the senator just described something that is worth risking a nuclear conflict over? And that is something we should pause very deeply to think about in the most sober possible way. And we hope that our leaders are. But not all of them seem sober right now. Some of them seem reckless and, as usual, ignorant. Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, for example, spends a lot of time on cable television talking about world affairs. He seems like an expert. 
And yet by temperament, he's certainly the last person you'd want anywhere near a nuclear button. Today, Kinziger informed us that Russia's seizure of the defunct Chernobyl plant might, quote, trigger Article 5. Okay, it could be interpreted that way. And then what happens? Clearly, Adam Kinziger hasn't thought about that, not for a moment. So you see the problem here. The question is not who's at fault. We can say that Vladimir Putin is at fault for what happened last night. But then what? And that's the larger problem. Once conflict starts, especially when that conflict is televised, it's really hard to know what happens next. So anyone who thinks the invasion of Ukraine couldn't become a world war either lacks imagination or is lying to you. It certainly could become a world war. So that's the first goal, not making a terrible thing much, much worse. Here's the second goal. Keep the energy flowing. Cheap energy, we take it for granted, but it is the basis of all we have. No energy, no civilization. Unfortunately, a huge percentage of Europe's energy now comes from Russia and Ukraine. The European Union relies on Russia for roughly 40% of its natural gas. In Germany, which is one of the biggest economies in the world, that percentage is over half, most of its energy in the form of natural gas comes from Russia and Ukraine. So you don't hear that very often on television. This debate is framed exclusively in moral terms, and those are important, we shouldn't ignore them. But they're not the only terms we should consider. The fact is that Vladimir Putin has the power to send Europe, and for that matter, potentially the United States, into an economic depression. Putin has the power to turn off the lights. So where did Vladimir Putin get this power? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but a big reason is the climate people gave him this power. Thanks to pressure from zealots like John Kerry, Europe has been shutting down nuclear power plants for years. And that's a very confusing strategy. If you're worried about climate, nuclear energy is not the problem. Nuclear energy is the solution. It's reliable, it's domestically produced, it emits no carbon. So if you were genuinely worried about temperature rises, global warming, you would embrace nuclear energy. But our leaders, and not just ours, globally across the West, have done the opposite. Why? Maybe their donors and families are invested in so-called renewable technologies. Who knows? Whatever the reason, because of a series of very specific decisions made over time, the West is now dangerously dependent on Vladimir Putin for energy. Now, our leaders may act like this is not a big deal. It is definitely a big deal, and we ought to make decisions based on that fact. And finally, a topic no one ever brings up, we must protect the U.S. dollar. America's power derives from its wealth. Rich countries get to do what they want. Poor countries must obey their masters or they get invaded. We just saw that happen. That is the unchanging rule. In this country, control of the U.S. dollar is the key to our wealth. Our entire financialized, debt-based economy rests on the unique privilege of issuing the world's reserve currency. If the U.S. dollar is ever replaced, we are in legitimate trouble. Our debt will come due, our government will go bankrupt, and millions of Americans will become poor immediately. So this is the main thing we ought to be worried about, and it is a greater risk now than ever before. Debt-based dollar, Bill Jasper, this is the main thing that we need to be worried about. No one else talks about it. We have to be concerned about the petrodollar. Reminder that you're on mute and you have to unmute your microphone. Okay, go ahead. And we're, are, are we on? You're on. Okay. Uh, well, I really wanted to respond to Hillary Clinton on Rachel Madcow, MSNBC, because that was certainly a much more important thing to respond to. But 
Uh, Tucker Carlson uh, is one of one of the most intelligent and uh, articulate exponents of the freedom message on the mainstream media. And much of the time I'm in agreement with him. Uh, it was quite a statement though. I'm glad you focused on that at the end that the, the saving of our debt-based financial economic system uh, should be number one in our, uh, of our concerns. And um we may have this uh, actually solved for us because the World Economic Forum, as you know, uh, they just had their uh, Davos uh, confab where all the billionaires of the world flew in on their uh, jets and their, came on their private yachts and to tell the rest of us how we should live and reduce our lifestyles and eat bugs and uh not own anything because uh, we'll be happy in their new uh, great reset. And one of the things they call for is for central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. And so they're calling for, it would solve this problem of the, uh, of the debt-based system because then, and they had Zhu Ming, one of the uh, top economists of communist China, the communist, uh, Chinese Communist Party, speaking there and explaining to them why we, the rest of the world could be more like China. And so the central bank will determine uh, how, uh, when you will be paid, how you will be paid, if you will be paid, all of your savings and everything will all be digitalized. And uh, the Klaus Schwab and all the rest of the, the uh, billionaires who meet there uh, all seem to be very very much in on this. Uh, Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, was there. So um, what we have seen over the last century since we established our central banking here with the Federal Reserve is this cartelization of the banking system, of the financial system, uh, the enslavement of most of the American people uh, to debt, and the rest of the world uh, becoming, since World War II, since Bretton Woods, uh, enslaved to the dollar. And uh, however, in getting out of that, uh, moving to a China-based or a uh, brick-based uh, currency, or now their new digital currencies, which the central bankers of the world all call for, uh, that's not going to be a real good solution for this either. And so um, I don't know what... Uh, uh, solutions uh, Monsieur uh, Tucker Carlson has for this. He didn't really get to that. What he what he proposed as saving this debt based system, but it is yeah. the debt based system which is actually propelling much of this that we're. Well, we're, it seems like he's merely in defense of the status quo, and the status quo is a fiat currency, uh, you know, uh, which is mon monopoly money. It's it's invented and created by banks via fractional reserve lending, um, and he and he's in all, he's all in favor of that. But particularly the it, the petrodollar is what allows us to do that. The fact that we are the reserve currency of the world, it seems to me, Bill, that uh, you know maybe one of Putin's goals is to derail the petrodollar and supplant uh, the petrodollar, which is uh, as a reserve currency of the world and as the currency of choice for the purchase of petroleum in the Mideast, 
with either the 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 yuan or um or the ruble or or whatever or anything else besides the dollar and 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 our the, the fact that that we are the reserve currency in the world is what allows us to you know spend like drunken sailors and and it well, and looks that to is, me like Tucker is defending that and that has been the great seduction which has allowed Americans to be lured into this because we the United States, with all our vast resources, vast wealth, and all of the independence which we had here under a federal system, which the central government did not control everything back when the Federal Reserve was was founded, uh, that was the, the the lure. And particularly since since the, then, you move up to to Bretton Woods, and they uh, started the whole uh, World Bank International Monetary Fund. Uh, system and the petrodollars began uh, flowing, Americans were able to continue that, or rather I should say our government was able to continue pushing all of these programs which were bankrupting us because we didn't feel any effect of it because we were the uh, uh, the, the goose that laid the golden egg. We had the, had the, the power and so everybody wanted to buy, uh, wanted the U.S. dollar. And so they're they're glad to give us uh, debt. They're glad to give us uh, credit. And so Americans have not had to pay the price for all the spending that that our governments have done uh, for the last 50 years. And yeah. all of that has now been, all of that has been used to build up the power of these various cartels and to uh, push uh, socialism and the redistrib- yeah. redistributive state all over the world. And so That's now right. um, that uh, we're, we're coming to the denouement of that. And uh, right. it's going to be a, it's going to be a nasty ending. We've been spending on credit and we've been inflating away uh, our, our obligations. I want to bring Ben in because I have a specific question for both of you. You know, Ben sort of uh, Ben brought up the fact, Bill, that Italy uh, was seizing assets of oligarchs. Um, what we've seen is that the U.S., as part of the sanctions, has, has, has been threatening to shut down swift banking transactions in and around Russia. Uh, we have the G7, uh, the, the seven largest economies of the world, including Japan and Germany and France, the United States, etc., who are now going to just take assets who are owned by Russian nationals that we don't like. We have Now, we've seen banking... You weaponized up in Canada with the truckers. We've seen money as a weapon system. And we were taught this in the Marine Corps and in command and staff college. And we use this in Afghanistan. I used it. Money as a weapon system. So it is a weapon system and banking is, can be weaponized against people. My question to both of you is, um, do, and, and I'll, I'll go to Bill first. I am skeptical of the idea that the G7 of governments will collude with each other and say, we're going to deprive citizens from a country that we don't like, that is doing something we don't like, of their personal property. Whatever, what the hell happened to the seventh commandment? We can't steal. It's not our property. Why why is it okay that the G7 takes from oligarchs? Okay, they're oligarchs and they could afford it? What are we, communists now? Bill, to you. I'm glad you brought up uh, Canada, because we we have seen here firsthand just in the last few weeks what has been happening in Canada. And it isn't oligarchs. It's people who have been demonized for what? For like the little 
woman who has the gelato shop gave $50 to help the truckers to pay for gas. And she gets uh, demonized. She gets threatened. She gets her, her bricks thrown through the window of her shop. She gets her website gets sabotaged. Uh, she's doxxed. Uh, everybody's attacking her. And it, uh, that has been happening all across uh, Canada. And not only there, but here in the United States with people who have been demonized as and criminalized in the public square for uh, being involved in the Trump rally on January 6th. And so, yes, uh, it's easy to demonize uh, 9-11 terrorists and extrapolate from there, okay, uh, everybody who's associated with Osama bin Laden or whatnot becomes uh, immediately suspect, no, no due process needed. Uh, we can just confiscate uh, their, their uh, possessions. We can uh, throw them in jail. The the oligarchs, well, the, for instance, the most uh, infamous there in in uh, Ukraine is Akhmetov. Uh, he's he's a, a billionaire. Uh, in Russia, right across the, the you have uh, Roman Abramovich, and he's of course in London, where um, Ben's uh, very familiar with. He, he owns a big uh, football team, and many other Russian oligarchs have gone to London. Italy, Greece, etc. So that makes it very easy pickings right now when Russia is the villain. But once you start that process going, it's easy then to put anyone in the crosshairs and begin using that process on anyone. And you look at who is controlling the United States government now and most of the G7 uh, governments. Uh, Would they be averse to using these weaponized new financial tools? I don't think so. I think it's a very dangerous thing. If uh, many of these people should have been, had their uh, possessions confiscated a long time ago, uh, and there was plenty, I think, uh, plenty of grounds, but it has to be done legally through the legal process, through due process, and not just on the spur of the moment because of mob action. No, I agree, Bill, with that, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's a great irony, uh, isn't it, that um, uh, the reason why all this uh, flood of Russian money came to London and, and, of course, to the States as well, is that those damn Anglo-Saxons who Putin uh, uh, explicitly uh, uh, condemns in, in using the worst language um uh, are exactly those people uh, whose rule of law uh, and property rights uh, guarantees are what attracted that money to us in the first place um there is no rule of law in 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 russia uh, there is law something's written down but uh, it only applies to you when the top guy uh, decides it's going to apply to you otherwise it doesn't um and so that's why the money uh, uh found its way to London and, and to other financial centers. Um, so it's a great irony that now we're turning around and, and, and we're, uh, we're taking it from them, or at least freezing it for the moment. Um, having said that, there is a, 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 another side to it, of course, and, and the, the rationale for it is that um, given the fact that uh, Russia is effectively ruled by the will of one man, to affect that will um, uh, and his decision-making, uh, obviously, they think that um, uh, by uh, putting pressure on the, the men around him, 
uh, they can uh, potentially influence, and these people will, will potentially influence him. I think that uh, horse has bolted. Uh, I don't think he can be influenced by this action at all. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be using the money to uh, rebuild Ukraine at some point, um, or, or maybe it will find its way back to its uh, original owners. So, uh, uh, it's a, but it's certainly a great irony that uh, the, the very people who've, um, who, who, uh, who are taking it from these guys uh, uh, you know, were offered them the advantages that they thought they would get from our systems in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. What I would like to do, and I know Ben, it's it's very early for you. You need to you need to move on with your life, and we need to get off of the Ukraine story because we have so many other things that we want to cover in this what is looking like going to be the longest rundown of all time. I want to do one more thing on on the Ukraine Russia story. It's a lightning round. And it's on Our Lady of Fatima. And I want to start with you, Brother Martin. Uh, so two questions for the panel. Number one, do you think that per Our Lady's request at Fatima, that any pope in the history of the Catholic Church in the last hundred years has validly consecrated Russia to Our Lady of Fatima in union with all the bishops in the world, precisely as she has asked, Brother Martin? And then secondly, if that hasn't happened, do you think that there's still time for it to happen? And if there is time, who should do it, how it should be done? And if there's not time, what does that mean for all of us? There's a lot of questions, Brother Martin, a lot on your shoulders. A lot on my shoulders. Well, if the question is, if the Pope, in union with all of the bishops, has validly consecrated Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady, uh, the fact that all of the Ukrainian bishops have petitioned Pope Francis to consecrate Russia to Our Lady kind of proves that it hasn't been done. In the sense that there's, <laughs> it's yeah. it, that and, and Archbishop Vigano and everybody else, it's it's up for debate. In which case, it hasn't been done. Um, what's interesting is that if it's done by Pope Francis and it works, that's the immediate punch to all the set of a contest because obviously it proves that Pope Francis is Pope. If Pope Francis does it and it doesn't work, well, we have another conundrum, don't we? (laughs) Is it because it's too late? Is it because he's not Pope? It's up for debate. These times are times, these times are very interesting. Very interesting. Buckle buckle in, buckle your seatbelts. I think Pope Francis, regardless, should do it. I don't think he'll do it. I don't think he'll do it precisely because of how he's treated the Ukrainian Greek Orthodox or the Ukrainian Greek Catholics against the Patriarch of Moscow. Um, he's stated several times that he that Pope Francis doesn't agree with un, uh, unitism, which is the fact that you know if a, a group of parishes or, or dioceses want to convert back to Rome, they'll give them their own right, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't agree with that anymore. He says it's outdated. He basically the the Mos- Moscow Patriarch doesn't believe that. Uh, the Eastern uh, right Catholics have no reason to exist yet. They go and create Russian Orthodox out, uh, church outside of Russia, all their hypocrisies out, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's a complete total hypocrisy contradiction. You expect that from schismatics and Orthodox. They don't rash. They, they don't, they don't reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's been done. I don't think the bishops agree. It's been done. Um, is it too, is it too late? Um, our Lord has stated that it, it can be too late. There's, there's no reason for us to actually determine whether or not it's too late. It's, it's, it's our Lord's to determine whether or not it's too late. 
Um, but there's nothing, there's nothing in one sense, there's nothing to lose to just go ahead and do it. I mean, if it hasn't been done, um, it can be too late as, as, as in the in France and, and consecrating France to the sacred heart of Jesus. Um, but yeah, I mean, don't we, I mean, don't we normally just get a hundred years and it's been a hundred years, uh, since 1917. Uh, but then some people say, well, it's really 1929 is when the clock starts, you know, so we have till 2029. Ben, I want to kick it over to you. Cause I know you have a hard out and I know that you have family stuck in Russia. Uh, same yeah, question. I do at the moment. And well, guys, the, the sanctuary, um, is 400 yards away from where I'm sitting right now. Um, so uh, this question is, 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 you know, one I've done a lot of thinking about. And uh, the answer to your first question, um, Mike, without any question, it hasn't been done. I, I just don't see why, how that could even be debated. It clearly hasn't been done. Um, the second question, uh, if Pope Francis was to do it, would anything happen? Well, I mean, Our Lady didn't talk about any timescale on a conversion of Russia. Um, maybe it would be, the, I mean, I don't think it would be instantaneous. Maybe it would be a few years later. Maybe it would be, you know, 20 years later. Um, so the two are not necessarily connected. You know, the old sedis may be slavering at the bit about it, but um, I'm not sure that uh, we would um, get an immediate uh, uh, conversion. However, I've got one thing to, a couple of things to say, guys, about this, and um, just to throw a big stone into the pond, and I'd be interested to to hear what your what the ripples are. Uh, I have a theory uh, that uh, when Our Lady said uh, Russia would be converted, she wasn't talking about the modern country called Russia, but the original uh, uh, Kievan Rus baptized into the Catholic faith. 1100 years ago that kievan rus is what we call ukraine so i'll just throw that one in and um yeah i would uh, uh, i'm hoping that uh, here in fatima i'll be able to uh, have my family with me at some point soon uh, my wife uh, olga is russian she's from st petersburg she and uh, uh, her daughter are currently in um uh, in st petersburg and uh, uh, unfortunately, um, were too late renewing their EU visa, which is now no longer possible. Um, uh, the skies are closed, so uh, we're on Telegram all day uh, debating about how I'm going to get them back here. At the moment, we haven't got a clue. Oh, my. Um, so let's hope we get that one solved sooner rather than later. Yeah, prayers for the um, Carter family, my goodness. Yeah, thanks guys for that. So that that's my uh, top of me uh, hate hate with, with uh, on on Fatima. Um, does it actually mean Russia or does it mean Ukraine? <laughs> ben Carter uh, throwing a grenade onto the table from Fatima, Portugal, right before he bows out of the conversation. God bless you. Thanks for waking up at two in the morning. God bless, guys. It's a great pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. Take yeah, care. Sure. God bless. All right. Uh, the show continues, and we're we're gonna go to Bill uh, next on the Fatima question. Bill, what do you what are your thoughts? Was it consecrated, and can it be consecrated now? Is it too late? What do you think? Well, I agree with <clears throat> Brother Martin and with with Ben Carter. Uh, I don't see how anyone can really hold to the opinion any longer that it has been consecrated. Uh, 
the standard answer is that uh, Pope John Paul II consecrated the world to uh, the Immaculate Heart of Mary and uh, Russia is in the world. So that takes care of it. Uh, <laughs> Our Lady yeah. was very specific about that. She said Russia will spread her errors. And she said Russia had to be consecrated. And so, uh, I mean, you look at uh, when God gave Moses the uh, uh, directions uh, for building the tabernacle, and then we gave Solomon the uh, directions for building the, the Ark of the Covenant and all of those things. Everything was very specific. And if any of them had said, well, I'm just going to do it this way because I think it would be better, I don't think the Lord would have been very happy about that. And we know that the Blessed Mother was not, didn't come to Fatima on her own. Uh, she sits at the right hand of her son, who's at, the ha- who's at the right hand of the father, and she doesn't uh, give any messages of her own or have any apparitions of her own. It's all through God. Uh, this hasn't been done, and we haven't seen a conversion of Russia. And so we are still awaiting, in my opinion, for the consecration of Fatima. I was uh, probably only a, a couple hundred yards from where uh, Ben Carter was in 2009 when I went to Fatima and uh, did a pilgrimage of, to Fatima and all the Marian uh, shrines of uh, France, Portugal, and Spain. And uh, so I, I've been praying uh, since I was a wee child, uh, seven, uh, close to 70 years ago, uh, for the conversion of mm-hmm. Russia and for the consecration of Russia, and I believe it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Uh, but it's not too late. It's not too late. In my but opinion. it's not too late. See, now that's yeah. in it. So, so I want to, it's not too late. And Ryan, I want to, I want to get your take on this. Cause again, I think our lady tends to give us, you know, a hundred year clock and maybe the, maybe the clock started in 17 or maybe it's until 29. Um, do you think it's too late right now? If, if Pope France were to walk outside and gather up all the bishops and somehow get them on the same page, which I don't think he could, but let's just say he could do that. Is it too late? I don't know. Um, if uh, I'm not an expert on Fatima, it's something I tend to stay out of because I know too many people that had uh, rotten spiritual life and, and very complicated, uh, you know, um, home life uh, in terms of you know various things. But they'd read every single book on Fatima and could sit there talking about the third secret all day and what it really was. And I, I just get lost in it all, honestly. Um, from what I recall in, uh, in terms of the third secret, there's that explicit warning not to wait a hundred years, uh, like the, you know, the King, Kings of France. And so if we backtrack to that, uh, St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, um, or rather, so I, I don't know the French is properly said. She, through her spiritual director, Claude de la Colombert, had gone to King Louis XIV of France asking yeah. him to do the consecration of the Sacred Heart. And this is 1688 when uh, the, the revelations happened, 1689 when the command is given. And Claude de la Colombert, although it was 1688 in. Uh, the Julian calendar. So in England, when the glorious revolution is happening, so-called, uh, which is when William of Orange d- displaces James II, the last Catholic King of England. And in England from that point forward becomes 
a worldwide empire that becomes a thorn in the side of the French through the War of Spanish Succession, uh, the Seven Years' War, uh, that they, they end up uh, you know, defeating the French fairly handily. So the, uh, but anyway, so Louis XIV looks at this request and he says, well, what maybe I should do this. And then his advisor saying, no, 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 moi, if you do and nothing happens, you will look like a fool. You can't do that. <laughs> and Louis XIV hearkened to his advisors, and he didn't do it. And neither did Louis XV. And then you get to 100 years from the giving of that command, 1789, the breakout of the French Revolution, the very end of Catholic of what was the eldest daughter of the church in, that, in the way it had existed hitherto. So, and really, the microcosm for all the revolutions in the world, even communism, right there in the French Revolution, you have the birth of communism, the uh, the sancula, and all the all the ideas um, that they that, that are presented from of the they're all the nucleus of communism right there. There are many books that have been written on this. This is not a controversial statement. So, anyway, so you get from there, and then we look at Fatima, and. There's a so nine, uh, 2017. There was a lot of buzz about that because the, the apparitions began in 1917, and there we were in 2017. And people said, "Oh well, you know, something's going to happen." And you know, those who said that Russia was actually consecrated were then saying, "Oh wow, we're going to see it." And then those who said, um, "No, it hasn't been consecrated yet," so now it's going to all end, and nothing happened. So, I, started, I started prepping in 2017. By the way, right. I was like, "Oh, this hundred years. Where this is it." Right. And so then a friend of mine pointed out uh, that, well, the command to consecrate uh, Russia to the Immaculate Heart wasn't given until 1929. That's right. So we may have till 2029. And that would be interesting because it, 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 it's funny how different dates work around. I mean, there's it's not like a numerology like God has to work on all these. But, um, you know, 2027 will be the 500th anniversary of the Sacco de Roma. That is the sack of Rome when Charles the the fifth's mm-hmm. uh, soldiery had mutinied and, and sacked the city and, and laid it absolutely to waste and destitute uh, for all of its, for all of the crimes of Rome, which even John Fisher, St. John Fisher remarked upon, you know, all the wickedness that was going on in Rome in one of his treatises. So that, you know, that, that could be seen 500th anniversary. You might see something like that. You might not, that might just be expostulation on my point that that goes nowhere. Who knows? But ultimately, you know, it's like what happens if 2029 comes and it goes and nothing happens. That could very well be the case. And so f- what I take from Fatima is more intrinsic to souls are falling into hell like leaves off the trees. And she's speaking of the Catholic Church at a time when all Catholic churches in the world had the traditional Latin Mass or a Western rite of the traditional Latin Mass or the Eastern Divine Liturgy traditional rites that are thousands of years old and, and, and pleasing to God. There was no Novus Ordo. Uh, women wore dresses, veils, men wore suits. They were sharp. They were modest, at least exteriorly on the outside. Uh, seemed to be, you know, the manners we think of how bad things are now. We think it was wonderful then. And that's the period in culture that Our Lady is saying souls are falling to hell like leaves off the trees. And so I take from that, pray the rosary. And go to the five, do the five first Saturdays. So, how many people that read all these books on uh, the third secret one? And there are people who are. I mean, if you are, I'm not singling you out. But you, we all know there are people who don't. How many of these people do not do the first five Saturdays? And they're not so 
big on uh, consistent in the rosary, but they're quite present on Fedbook or on Twitter arguing about their secret type of stuff and consecration and, and what have you. So, so what I take from the most important part of Fatima for me is praying the first, doing the first, the five first Saturdays at least once a year, if not twice, or mm-hmm. continually if you can, um, and, and praying the rosary. And that's what is going to make, um, you know, because how many, how do we know that the consecration hasn't been done because the faithful have not been doing the five first Saturdays? We don't know that. And we don't know it's not the case either. It may very well be the case. And that's, that's what I take away from it more than yeah. Yeah. Uh, the various discussions about was this consecrated? Was this not consecrated? And did this really happen? And I, I leave that to the experts. I think, I think, I think that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty good takeaway uh, because it's, it's, it's imminently practical. Uh, but because I didn't ask James the question uh, on the hypothetical, I got to bring you in, James, for the last word on Our Lady of Fatima. And my question to you is, if if you were Pope Francis right now, uh, given given what, what all has been uh, said on this stream already, would you even bother consecrating Russia to the, the Immaculate Heart? Because there, there's really a, there's there's a lot of downside risk. If nothing happens while you're alive, then either you're an anti-pope and Anne Barnhart was right or the Settis were right, or it was too late and you and you know and you just missed the boat anyway and you made a fool of yourself. Seems like a lot of downside risk, James. Why would he do it? That's a very good question. Um, I think back to uh, the papacy of John the Twenty Third. I mean, are we living in a better situation then, where there was uh, very heavy concern that any action to uh, bring about a consecration would be seen as uh, something very negative by the Soviet Union? So that's the question right now is, is uh, Francis himself feeling uh, that uh, there, there has to be some sort of way to not uh, upset, you know, uh, the Russians? I, I know this was brought to him. At least we were told by Father Gruner that uh, this message uh, came to uh, Putin at the time and uh, Putin had put out a request uh, or was trying to put out a request. I don't quite remember the story, but th- there's a certain fear. You know, men look for this uh, approval from other men, especially those who uh, are, uh, you know, in, in power, who can, who basically have that, you know, uh, p- power to affect, you know, whatever economic uh, restrictions or war, what, what you know, what have you. So there's a look. Well, like John the Twenty Third was concerned about what the Russians would do if he affected uh, uh, this uh, consecration. I don't know if if Pope Francis right now is going through that, you know, but it would seem as a, a possible reason for him to not want to consecrate uh, Russia. At least that's what Francis. If I were in the mind of Francis, that's what I would be thinking. How can I make everybody happy, uh, you know? And I don't want to upset the Russians. You know, of course, you know, not not uh, not the not not the right response. But uh, if there's enough, if there is enough frustration, as we we heard Brother Martin uh, remind us that the Ukrainian bishops uh, were basically pleading for 
the Pope to consecrate Russia if there's enough frustration. But as Ryan has also said, you know, I, I think personally the uh, consecration can only be effected if we are pleading to God to give the Pope the strength to do the consecration. The Pope by himself, especially if it's Francis, cannot have that moral courage. It takes moral courage to do this act. You know, one just doesn't roll out of bed one morning and say, I'm going to consecrate the world. He's going to need that moral courage that we yeah. will have to help him through the recitation of the rosary and through the participation of that, those first five Saturdays, like Ryan was just saying. So we're sitting around pointing fingers at Pope Francis. Yeah, sure. But, you know, the other fingers are pointing back right at us is what are we doing to help affect this? Uh, because it's a it's a hard um, thing to do. You know, if Pope Pius XII was unable to do it, what do we think would give uh, Pope Francis that power, that impetus to bring about this consecration? Uh, it'll take more than just, uh, you know, a group of bishops petitioning him. It might take, uh, you know, all the grace necessary that comes from the prayer of our hearts that are yearning for this consecration. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's a uh, pretty astute. I like it. Um Here's what we need to do, ladies and gentlemen. We've been going two and a quarter hours. We've been blessed to have Bill Jasper here with us, uh, editor of New American Magazine. What we will do is we will skip all the domestic stuff and we will punt it into next week and see if we can catch up. Or maybe we'll have a special midweek edition of the rundown. We will see. But what we have to do tonight is our unpopular opinions and our grifting segments. But to kick us off, uh, Ryan just sent me a link. I'm going to try to add it. Oh, boy. Here we are. We got ad. We got YouTube ads. We get an ad. Oh, damn. Sorry, already had a- you know what? I need, to, I need to get premium YouTube is what I need to do. I, I stream. I won't pay them. I don't want to pay them. Just give it to me for free. <laughs> but no, they don't. Okay. Here, I'm going to share my screen. Uh, screen share. This is supposed to be our transition into... The grip, the uh, unpopular opinion segment. This is from 1996. I can't think. It's all this noise. Or is it because I've built a stronghold around Greenland? I've driven you out of Western Europe, and I've left you teetering on the brink of complete annihilation. I'm not beaten yet. I still have armies in the Ukraine. <laughs> the Ukraine. You know what the Ukraine is? It's a sitting duck. A road apple, Newman. The Ukraine is weak. It's feeble. I think it's time to put the herd on the Ukraine. I come from Ukraine. You not say Ukraine weak. Yeah, well, we're playing a game here, pal. Ukraine is dead to you. How about I take the little <laughs> girls from <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. Uh, we're going to go around the horn. We always start with Ryan now for... The unpopular opinions. Sorry, I don't know how Bush uh, came up. Uh, unpopular opinions, ladies and gentlemen. Ryan Grant, you're leading us off. All right, my unpopular opinion this week um, is that there is no such thing as the single a vocation to the single life. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people who are who, there are people who are single, didn't marry for whatever reason, and, and they do suffer 
for that. And I'm not intending to mock your suffering or to attack you for anything or say you did anything wrong. People, you know, find their situation in life and, you know, it is what it is. But there is no vocation to the single life, right? Because the, And for that matter, marriage is not a vocation, properly speaking. That's all the rage now to talk about. But um, a vocation, properly speaking, is a calling to the four evangelical councils, which one takes principally in religious life and then also in, in partially in priestly life. The, you know, the state of marriage is a natural state. It's the natural state for which most men and women were destined. And the, you know, and those who don't, for whatever reason, and are single, that, that's perfectly fine. But unless they've, they've gone out into a monastery or they've gone out to be a hermit or something like that, they can't properly be said to have a vocation. That's going to trigger, trigger some folks I know, but... Oh, you're muted, Mike. I've even seen on banners in the new church crowd, you know, uh, consecrated, single, single life as a vocation. Like, like, how is that even a thing? All right, that's a good one. Uh, James, unpopular opinion for this week, the 4th of March, 2022, in the year of our Lord. I'm tired. Tired, Mike. You know what I'm tired of seeing? I'm so tired. I'm tired of seeing T-shirts. Get rid of T-shirts. <laughs> Get rid of those T-shirts, man. What are you doing? You know, uh, I'll, I'll give you a concession on polo shirts, okay? You can have polo shirts. You know, they have a collar. They have a couple of buttons. But what are you doing? What, you're, you're sitting around lounging in your house, and the first thing you do is you put on your T-shirt. You got to go to the store. You're wearing that same T-shirt. When I, you know, when I, come on, you know, get rid of the T-shirts. That's my. You're such a snob, James. I am. I am. It's terrible. It's terrible. But you're a fashionista. I. I, It's not about that though. It's about right order, and you know, you can't, uh, you know, going around wanting to have right order in your home if you're putting on the T-shirt first thing you roll out of bed in the morning. Putting on a T-shirt after saying morning prayers—that just kind of sets a day for. Uh, so, but it's so comfy. Successive man. failures so comfy. along along the way. <laughs> <laughs> I tell I tell my boys, you weren't made for comfy; you were made for glory. Uh, what, if you had a t-shirt, what if you had a T-shirt that said, "I spent two and a half hours on the rundown, and all I got was <laughs> <laughs> and all I got was this lousy T-shirt." Two and a half hours. What are we right. doing? Exactly. Need to get the grip going, man. Okay, I have two unpopular opinions. One, the first is that the unpopular opinion tag in the rundown tag right now that's it's displayed on your screen should be written in Ukrainian. Should be written in Ukrainian. (laughs) (laughs) My second unpopular opinion is is we talked about. I mean, Hungary limiting grain exports, Russia limiting Ukrainian or uh, wheat exports, etc. The reality is for the majority of human history, humans have received from their immediate environment all of the materials that they've needed to survive. In which case, if you're depending on Hungarian wheat exports, if you're depending on Russian natural gas exports, you're already a globalist. Um <laughs> If, if, if you're depending on lights being on and you don't have a few f- spare candles to keep lit or if you just can't go to sleep whenever it gets dark outside, 
this is the way the majority of humans for human history have lived. Uh, if you really need a light bulb, uh, you're comfy. Get over it. It's Lent. Perfect time to, to get rid of comfy. Oh, That's man. my popular opinion. How is Amazon going to work without cheap made in China goods? <laughs> How am I going to get my prime? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you are so rigid. I bet you have a Saturno. Uh, uh, probably. <laughs> Bill, <laughs> Bill, what's your unpopular opinion in your debut episode here on The Rundown? Uh, <clears throat> I don't have unpopular opinions. I check all the time, and I never hold an unpopular opinion. I wait to see which way the wind is blowing, and then I go with it. Pull tested. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, well, let's see. Let's uh, let's give an unpopular opinion here. I think that in this command and control economy and system that we've entered into, that uh, we should mandate that everyone must smoke once a day one bowl of Ryan Grant's worst pipe tobacco. <laughs> and uh, do it uh, while holding their breath. So wow. probably this some people the would best go person. along with that. Wow. Uh, but I don't, I don't have any... Um, uh, ideas today that I think would uh, I would like to to uh, foist on uh, on your public. But if I get a, a few more uh, uh, episodes under my belt, perhaps I could come up with. Something. <laughs> that, that's fair. That's fair. I'll jump in then with something that I, I, I had a I had a thread that I had planned on uh, on releasing yesterday and then I chickened out on Twitter because all the mama bears come after me whenever I talk about like child rearing and how children need to behave at mass and all this stuff. So I have a theory and I want to run it by you people. So uh, go ahead and downvote me. That's fine. I think that the number one reason why children misbehave at mass is because you put them in a crib. You let them cry it out. You sleep train them. I think that when you want to live your life of comfiness and you take your baby who is crying, begging for your attention because he or she is either in pain or needs the comfort of the mother or is hungry. Those are the three reasons why a baby cries. Uh, and you toss the baby into the basement so that you don't have to hear the baby anymore so you can live your life of comfy and of uh, so-called decorum. I think that is why children misbehave at mass. I think baby wearing, holding your baby, sleeping with your baby, taking care of your baby uh, leads to well-adjusted toddlers who can actually endure a solemn high mass. Now, again, I, I say this. This is, this is just my subjective observation of families whose children are awesome at mass and families whose children are not so good at mass. Um, and it, I think it is tied to uh, the so-called sleep training. In the 1970s, when the when really the, the Freudian pop psychology entered the scene and we were told that babies are psychologically manipulating us, um, people believed that, but they used it as an excuse for women to go back to the workplace. Don't worry if your baby cries, the Freudians told you. 
because that's just your baby trying to manipulate you. What you need to do is ignore your crying baby. Ignore your crying baby so that you can get back to the workplace. I think it's communist. I think it's Judeo-Freudian. And I think it's wicked. And unfortunately, I see it a lot in traditional families. And so I do think that the, the fact of the matter is, is that babies, it's impossible to spoil a baby. It's impossible. A baby is not self-sufficient. Baby can't take care of itself. It's entirely dependent upon you, mom. It's entirely dependent upon you. You don't shush a crying baby. You hold a crying baby. You don't ignore a crying baby. You comfort a crying baby. And when you do that, when you attach your child to yourself, it's called attachment parenting. Dr. Sears wrote a great book about it. I think that those children turn out a lot better. And so far, my subjective observation of families who do nurture their babies is that those babies tend to do well and they can endure a solemn high mass. Now, there are other things involved as well, gentlemen. All right. So don't fillet me here. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you have, look, if you have a TV, Look, these things matter. The diet matters. A, a lot of sugar, a lot of wheat. Those things all matter too. How you raise a child, whether or not you have entertainment in the house, uh, whether or not you go to public school and, and, and the attention span and all that. But I, I argue, my unpopular opinion is that if you regress everything down to one variable and you had to pick one, it's the so-called sleep training of infants so that mom and dad can be comfortable. That I think is the determinative factor in whether or not children behave at mass. Okay, uh, we have to get to the grifting segment. And in order, to, in order to grift, I have to use the GIF that my friends in Ferndale, Michigan have made for me. Thank you so much. What are we grifting this week, Brother Martin? Oh, you're muted! You didn't. Who muted me? I muted me. Anyway, um, besides my tickle calendar, starting a monastery, could use all of your support that you could possibly give. Um, I also have uh, – it's tax season. It's March. April's coming around the corner. Um, someone who's really reached out to me and has helped me, he runs a – he writes for Catholic Family News sometimes. He has his own blog, A Catholic, a Catholic Life. He's on Twitter, A Catholic Life. Um, but his name is Matthew Plessy, P-L-E-S-E. Um, he's really reached out to the old place and, and has really helped us out. If, if, if you're still looking for a tax guy in this season, uh, the tax season, uh, his email is Matthew, M A T T H E W L E S E 0916 at gmail.com. Um, he's a, he's a Catholic, obviously traditional Catholic, very, very in support of old place of St. Augustine and everything that we do. Um, so I just wanted to throw his information out there for anybody who's, who's still looking for a tax person this season. Awesome. All right. Hey, it is tax season. It's almost April 15th. It's my favorite day of the year, James. Uh, what are you reading and or grifting and or recommending? Nothing. And you're muted. But that looks like a good book, even though you're muted. This uh, this is a wonderful book. Uh, I'm going to try to try to get this. There we go. There we go. There Your crib it keeps uh, <laughs> wanting to take over. <laughs> I know. So this this book is it's a wonderful book, and I know we were talking about uh, Our Lady of Fatima today, and uh, it's a wonderful book put out by Angelus Press. And basically, the reason why I'm highlighting this book now is because um, you know these events as they are unfolding, we we don't know exactly what's going to happen or how things are going to end, but it's always a good thing to be prepared. 
Now, this book outlines a lot of things for us. It outlines uh, brief history, the brief story, uh, biography of the kids, of Our Lady's apparitions at Fatima, and it serves as a very good devotional. Sometimes we wonder um, in recitation of the Holy Rosary, how do we meditate or how do we keep focus while meditating? This book here has great uh, short meditations with each mystery of the Holy Rosary. And uh, it's been a very good companion uh, and it's very help, uh, helpful. Uh, and if you want to pick this up, you can pick it up at Angelus Press and uh, we have it right now on the screen. So I would recommend this book uh, for everybody. It's it's cheap. It's nine. It's nine. Well, basically ten dollars, and uh, it serves as a very good uh, resource uh, for anything uh, Fatima and Holy Rosary. And uh, please pick one up. That's great, uh, Ryan Grant. Great. Okay. Well, following on uh, Bill's suggestion. Uh, so, uh, I'm going to recommend a pipe tobacco. Um, so this one is called opening night. See if I can get it to, uh, focus properly. Uh, it's I don't want to know what it smells like. <laughs> um, oh, what is the top of the smell like? Well, anyway, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, delicious blend of red in bright Virginia's pressed to perfection. So if you do like uh, Virginia's, uh, it's it's not uh, scented. It's not an aromatic tobacco, but it's not harsh. If you're not used to things like, say, a very, very um, strong thing, like, say, uh, Peterson's Irish Flakes, very heavy on nicotine. Um, if you're not used to that, uh, it might make you yak. Uh, it's actually wonderful once you're used to it. But if you're not, if you just smoke, say, uh, some kind of vanilla cherry, something out of the gas station. It's going to be very harsh. This is very mild, very easygoing. Um, I don't know. The camera's not really picking up my uh, edit to the FDA. <laughs> nah, it's not working. Uh, I've changed it. Nicotine is in healthy chemical. <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't look like your camera picks up any black, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know, right? <laughs> I am giving a talk next week in Pasco, Washington, to a Catholic youth group on the Reformation. And so I have to recommend uh, Rome and the Counter-Reformation in England by uh, Monsignor Philip Hughes, one of England's very great Reformation historians, with a forward by the one and only uh, Charles Coulomb, uh, one of my very favorite people, even though we don't always agree. He's still a wonderful human being. And uh, I have... Autobiography of an Old Breviary. I actually have the book, finally. Uh, I was going to show it off last week, but uh, so if you order that, it's it's shipping out, uh, which is, a, again, a, if you don't remember from before, it's a story told by the breviary itself of, uh, you know, the priests that have uh, used him and the conversations that happened around him and the history of the breviary and how to pray the breviary devoutly. And, uh, and truly with the spirit of the church and the fathers, the history, the development of the breviary. It's a great book for all of that. Uh, lastly, I uh, rushed through two new books uh, this week. Uh, and when I say rushed, I mean they were given to me, edited, and so I worked to get them into production. And so I'm going to, one moment, so I'm going to share those. Uh, all right. 
The month of St. Joseph just got this one going. I don't have the copies yet, but they're coming. Uh, so this is a really awesome book um, for this month. It's not too late to start using it. It's got meditations uh, on the life of St. Joseph and the virtues we should learn from him for every single day. Um I said available by 3.8. I'm still hoping for that, but with the way shipping delays are and, and who knows what else comes up, I don't know if I'll quite have it by then. It might be a day or two later, at least for the paperback. The next book, uh, The Life of the Venerable Louis, Louis de Pont. Oh, that's the French version of his name. Also, Louis de la Penta. It was a Spanish Jesuit. Uh, incredible mystical life. And I'll just read you what Archbishop Goodyear um, who wrote The Public Life of Our Lord Jesus Christ and The Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ. He writes, quote, DuPont made use of all the great authors before him. In some sense, it might be said that what St. Thomas Aquinas was to dogmatic theology, DuPont was to mystical teaching and what the Summa Theologica did for scholasticism, the spiritual guide, which is one of DuPont's books, has done for mysticism. And so really amazing saint that you probably have never heard of. And now is your chance. It's not too long. It's only about 200 pages. It's a, it's a great biography, uh, you know, completely retypeset as always, um, you know, not, a, not a facsimile, um, you know, just, just great spiritual reading all around. All right. That's a, that's a pretty thorough grift. Uh, Mr. Bill Jasper joining us for the first time on the rundown. Well, I was magazine. not prepared for this, but yes, thank you for p putting that up there. Uh, I sh will shamelessly uh, uh, promote there The New American. It's, you can go to thenewamerican.com. It's the article, the, the, in front of it, thenewamerican.com. And uh, uh, crazily enough, I've been uh, doing this for 45 years, so um, uh, i Occasionally get a few things right uh, after all this time and I keep scribbling and uh, we keep uh, uh, pushing this out. The magazine is uh, biweekly and of course daily on our website we have uh, many more articles that uh, never make it into the magazine and what's in the magazine doesn't always go online. So I uh, encourage people to check out thenewamerican.com. Uh, since I, I, I see we've had, uh, uh, others have mentioned more than one, I will mention, uh, uh, a favorite, uh, charity of mine, which is the monks of Norcia, Italy, which is the order of St. Benedict. In fact, they're, uh, located in Norcia, otherwise known as Norcia, where, um, St. Benedict lived and had his home and was his first monastery. Uh, one of my sons is a third order, uh, in the Norcia. Uh, Order of St. Benedict. And uh, so uh, they make uh, great uh, beer there, the monks do. That's one of their means of income. And they, uh, two years two years ago, uh, I believe it was two years ago, maybe three, uh, had the big earthquakes there, which destroyed their monastery. And so they're rebuilding. And so they can always, yeah, there we go. That's, uh, uh, they, do, they do make uh, great beer. And uh, one final thing I would uh, recommend, uh, because I'm here in Idaho, North Idaho, and uh, one of my good friends uh, who I've known for most of his life uh, runs the Our Lady of Victory School homeschooling program 
uh, I would recommend uh, them as well. Uh, they're doing a good job to train up uh, generations of Catholic uh, homeschoolers and uh, and those who aren't homeschooling but want to have Catholic curriculum and materials. Uh, they're a good source for that. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. I love that. I love Our Lady of Victory. We've used some of their materials uh, in our homeschool as well. Uh, in addition to my typical thing where, hey, I want you to contribute to my legal defense, I am suing Church Militant for defaming me and for tortuously interfering with my business relationships. So you can go to uh, givesendgo.com slash defeatcmtv. I'll put it as a ticker down below, givesendgo.com slash defeatcmtv. That seems to be going uh, as planned and it's going fine. They've sued me. I've sued them. We'll see how it shakes out. But what I do want to promote for come upcoming next week is we've been talking about Our Lady of Fatima. I have uh, one person coming on to Restoring the Faith who's never been on before, and his father, Paul Kramer. And he's good friends with Eric Gajewski at Tradcat Night. They're both going to try to convince me that the Ukraine was foretold by a mystic that I haven't heard about and that uh, we're quite short on time, so don't miss that. That's at 7 a.m. Central Time Monday, live-streamed. I think you'll enjoy that show. Um, I'm going to be in listen mode just like most of you, but I do think it will be interesting. Um, this is the rundown, and this now is the longest rundown that we've had, and so we have to end it in a non-traditional way, I think, and it's fitting. I found my field on Blueberry Hill. Thank you.